This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host and your friend, John Syracusa. Today is Friday. It's August 24th, 2012. This is episode number 82. We would like to say thanks very much to our three amazing sponsors, Hover.com, IgluSoftware.com, and SourceBits.com. Of course, we don't want to forget to mention that this uh, bandwidth for this whole month has been provided by AudiobooksApp.com. Listen to thousands of classic audiobooks free on your iPhone or iPad. AudiobooksApp.com. Check them out. Good day to you, Mr. John Syracuse. How are you? Good day, Dan Benjamin. Oh, I hear the lawnmowers there have started, so right the show cue. has officially begun. <laughs> Or the leaf blowers, rather. Yeah. What I like about what I like about that textual, we were talking about this before the show started for for an IRC client, is that it handles like the join part messages. It has a little instead of having to tweak the like the theme to get rid of those and, and do other weird things. You just there's a little checkbox. Yeah, but I did that like three years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. That's you and you and your preferences. That's the value of preserving the preferences across across multiple upgrades. All right, to this week, guess what? What? Mountain Lion. Oh, awesome. What a surprise. Yeah. The last Mountain Lion show. I think it will be the last Mountain Lion show. We're going we're gonna to plow through it, man. We'll get through it. Yeah, and I, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking there actually isn't even that much more Mountain Lion stuff to go. So I have another topic queued up behind it, which Whoa. I, I think we'll actually get to. I like that. We'll see. Actually, there's several topics queued up behind it. Many, many topics. But one, one I know I'm pushing off to another show. That's the talking about the production process in the ebooks. That's not this show. Next show at the earliest. Uh, but the other topics, we'll see. So let's dive dive back into Mountain Lion. Dive third, into Mountain Lion with your host, John topic. Syracuse. Yeah, we did two show, two full shows talking about my Mountain Lion review. And this will be the third and hopefully the last. And when last we left... Uh, the last topic we talked about was Objective-C uh, changes. I got a little bit of follow-up on that. I'm, I'm not going to try not to follow up on the show because I just want to do main topics. But uh, the one item that several people sent me about the Objective-C enhancements was that I was discussing the little square brackety syntax that gets converted into a message, uh, sending a message, you know, to your to your NSRA or whatever. Uh, and there's two things people point out. First is that it doesn't have to be an NS array. It's not keyed off that one particular class. It's any class that responds to that message. Uh, and the second is that the specific message sent is not object at index. It's like uh, object at index for subscript. I should have had this in the note somewhere. I apologize for not having it in there. But uh, those, those two points are clarifications of the previous topic, that the syntax changes to Objective-C don't just work with uh, NS array or NS dictionary and stuff like that. They work with any class. You can make your own class that responds to these selectors and that uh, and then you benefit from this new syntax as well. And the second was that the specific messages that it sends is not the same as the ones shown in the code example. I mean, the, the, the result is the same. But anyway, read the documentation if you want to see which uh, methods do I have implemented in my class to participate in this little bit of syntactic sugar they added to Objective-C. So there's a mini follow-up. Did I have another mini follow-up item? Uh, oh, yeah, one... One more really distant mini follow-up item. We talked about dictation several shows ago. Uh, I said that you have to like press the button and then do your talking and then press the button again and then wait and then your stuff comes out. And, and uh, Lucas Rotondo wrote in to say that actually, even though you have to press it, speak, and then press it again, then your text comes out, 
it starts sending data up to the server as soon as you start speaking, apparently. It uh, doesn't really change the, the objection to the interface, which is that you have to wait after you hit the button, but it doesn't actually wait until you've said everything to start sending, which makes sense. You know, as you speak, it sends it up to the server or whatever, but you don't see any text until you hit the button again. Uh, and that's the real barrier to actually using it for dictation. All right. So the next section after Objective-C stuff in the review is about power management. And a lot of this is one of the major items of feedback I've gotten from people with real world problems with Mountain Lion, which there have there have been few. But the one I see a lot are complaints about battery usage. Do you have any uh, issues with that? I don't know if you're one of the people who was complaining. Yeah, I had complained, but it turns out that uh, the reason that I was complaining about Mountain Lion on uh, in particular, the the Retina MacBook Pro uh, was actually not due to Mountain Lion at all. In fact, it was due to uh, it was due to an application. Should I name the application? It was the TweetBot Alpha or Beta or whatever it is uh, because I was able to reproduce this on the MacBook Air that did not have battery issues on Mountain Lion and, until I started running that app and I was able to test it and I don't know if there was a memory leak or something else going on. But since I removed or stopped using that app entirely, uh, my battery usage is uh, quite excellent. And uh, the laptop seems to be a miracle of battery life sharing. So, yeah, that's that's. I remember hearing that story from you, and I've heard similar stories from other people. That, like I upgraded to Mountain Lion, and my battery life is terrible. Uh, and a, a couple of people who I've like went into investigated with this, like they're either unable to reproduce it or were able to track it down through my debugging advice by looking at like Activity Monitor and stuff like that. That like something was soaking up their CPU, and what was it? Usually, it's a web browser, and usually the web browser has a tab that's running Flash or something. And it's like just coincidental, like they upgraded, and then they're doing, you know, right after the upgrade, they're doing some web browsing. They happen to hit a web page that happens to have a, a badly behaved Flash item in it that grinds their CPU down. And because the last thing they did with the system was upgrade it, now it's you know Mountain Lion is the thing that's causing their battery to die. When in reality, it was like. You know, some some things, some flash widget on some page and some hidden tab sucking up their CPU, uh, and it would have happened on any previous OS as well. And you had a, having Tweetbot be the the culprit in your case is something that is a new one to me. Uh, but that, that just goes to show the problem of what after you upgrade an operating system, anything that goes wrong, you will blame on the fact that you just <laughs> updated the operating system. Of course, yeah. As KG Healy says, post hoc ergo proctor hoc. I can't pronounce that. Proctor hoc. There we go. What does that mean? Uh, KJ Healy, you want to translate that? It's it's the Latin condensed version of blaming stuff on the last thing that you changed, not the actual cause. Yeah, I used to have an IT guy that worked for me, and the the way that he went, you know, like the we supported the software development, so all of our servers were like, you know, and so but the developers, those horrible developers, had access to these machines and would occasionally install something or upgrade something. And the way that he would troubleshoot a problem was to go to the software developers and say, okay, what did you change? Because clearly we can't have a problem on our systems. They're perfect. You must have done something. Well, that, that is a good strategy for figuring out. <laughs> and it out worked most like, of the time. You know, yeah, it is. It is actually a good strategy, but KJ Healy's translation of it is uh, after this, therefore because of this. So because two events followed each other, you're implying a cause and effect simply because they're in sequence. Uh, and, with computing and with a lot of things, that's a good, that's not a, a crazy rule to have. It's like, okay, uh, something is going wrong. Before it was working, now it isn't. What did you actually change? And upgrading the operating system is a pretty big change. So it's it's natural to say, okay, I upgraded the operating system, now this bad thing happened. Uh, but in, in the case of the battery life thing, so far, 
I haven't yet been convinced that there actually is a battery life problem with Mountain Lion. Uh, every instance that I've personally investigated, and apparently the one that you personally investigated, it has been a case of a misattributed cause and effect relationship, and actually it was something else. Uh, but power management is a big deal in Mac OS X, cer- certainly a big deal in iOS. Like That's a, a no-brainer. iOS is practically built around the idea of preserving the precious battery life. But uh, the vast majority, is it vast? Maybe? Well, the majority of Macs sold are laptops, and so they have batteries too. Now, their batteries are gigantic compared to the battery sitting in, in an iPhone or something, but there's still batteries. And so the, the uh, battery life conservation is a concern on the Mac. Uh, and Apple has you know, done all sorts of things to, to increase the battery life. One of the, things that they're, one of the biggest things they're doing to increase battery life is removing all those moving parts. So getting ready of the spinning disks for all the other reasons you might want to do it. Uh, not having something that moves uh, is a big deal. And not just because it takes a lot of energy to keep it spinning, but it, you, know, you don't want to keep it spinning all the time, but stopping and starting it all the time. Like, that's just, it, SSD is uh, much friendlier in terms of power management and can get friendlier and friendlier over time, whereas the power usage of hard disks, although it has gone down, uh, does not drop quite as dramatically as you could imagine it dropping for solid-state device as they go through process shrinks and stuff. Uh, and, of course, getting rid of the CD drive. Like, if you're going to watch a movie on a DVD, it takes way more energy to spin that DVD than it does to stream the the bits off of an SSD through a hardware H.264 decoder. I mean, just look at how long you can spend watching a video on an iPod Touch and consider how long, you know, what kind of battery you would need to watch that same movie from a DVD in a slot-loading drive on a, on a computer. Uh, so there's definitely a hardware component to keeping uh, power usage down, but on the OS level, there's a software component as well. And the software component is uh, you know, when you've got the two different GPUs, you've got the embedded one inside the CPU and you have the discrete one and Apple hands off between them. And that's mediated by the operating system. It has to decide when do I need the discrete GPU? When do I need the integrated one? Uh, and Apple's made some changes there to, to make Mountain Lion not need the discrete GPU in all the same cases that it needed it on the previous versions of the operating system. So it can spend more time on the integrated GPU and keep the discrete GPU powered down. Uh, they're also trying to uh, the operating system is also in charge of when parts of the system go to sleep. Uh, individual uh, banks of memory, the SSD, the cores and the processor, uh, but also, of course, the entire Mac itself. Uh, you know, it, when, you, it, when your computer is asleep, it's using way, way less energy than when you're using it. You know, it turns the screen off, it brings everything down to just the barest minimum of power. It needs to retain the contents of RAM. And all that stuff. And that's under the control of the operating system. But the tricky part with sleep is you have to figure out when is it okay to go to sleep. And there are some proxies and heuristics you can use. Like if someone is clicking the mouse or swiping around on the trackpad, that's a pretty clear signal that the computer should not decide to go to sleep. Right. But once once user input stops, no more mouse clicks and no more keyboard buttons, then it becomes trickier because you're like, okay, well, uh, can I put the system to sleep now? Because the guy hasn't touched the mouse or the trackpad or the keyboard in a long time. But maybe he's just reading a long article, right? So you don't know whether you can put things. So you're like, okay, well, how long might it take to read a long article? Should I wait a minute? Should I wait two minutes? Uh, you know, when, when is it okay to go to sleep? It, it makes me think that the next sensor to be added to Max should be a proximity sensor. I mean, they got the camera already, but they don't have anything that's equivalent to the proximity sensor on, on the iPhone where they should be able to tell if I'm sitting in front of the computer and like maybe don't turn it off if I'm sitting there and maybe tell if I'm in the front of the computer uh, as uh, opposed to just the back of my chair being in front of the computer, you know? Some sort of thing that looks for like a uh, 
you know, I guess it would have to be an IR camera to look for some sort of warm living thing sitting, you know, in front of the computer. And even that is tricky because like, well, what if you have it attached to an external monitor and nobody is sitting in front of in front of the computer? They're actually in front of the monitor, which is far away from the computer and all sorts of problems there. So uh, but that is definitely an area of, of ongoing hardware software integration. But the bottom line is that the operating system has to decide when to sleep the system. And it's got a little setting in there where you can say when on battery power, when on uh, AC power, go to sleep after X minutes. And there's a little slider, right? But that, the tricky part is X minutes of what? What does that even mean? We take it when we're sliding that slider around. That means like, okay, if I haven't used it in X number of minutes, you can go to sleep. And use you can kind of use the proxy of like no keyboard or mouse input. But you'd still be pretty annoyed if you started to watch a, uh, like a movie, QuickTime movie on your computer, and you don't touch the mouse or the keyboard for 30 minutes. And it says, oh, I've had no mouse or keyboard input for 30 minutes. Obviously, this guy's not using the computer. And it goes to sleep in the middle of your show or your movie or something. Like, that would piss you off, right? Oh, yeah. And so there has to be some other system for, like, the movie player to say, look, I know there's no input going on. Uh, but rest assured that this person is actually using the computer. They don't know that. I mean, you could just set it to run, <laughs> again, no proximity sensor. They don't know you're sitting in front of it. But a good movie player application will have to have some way to signal to the system, I don't want you to go to sleep because... The guy could be watching this movie, so don't put the system to sleep, even though they haven't, uh, you know, touched anything for a long time. And in past versions of the operating system, the way to do that was the applications would register to get notifications about, what was it, power change state or something like that. And they would have the opportunity to veto that. So the system would go, okay, well, it's been 30 minutes and I haven't seen any user input, so I've decided that it's been 30 minutes idle. And it would tell the applications that are interested in that information and each application would have veto power. And so the movie player would say, actually, no, cancel that. Uh, I'm in the middle of playing a movie, and I've decided that whatever I'm doing is so important that the system should not be put to sleep. And so the system would go, okay, well, I tried to go to sleep, but someone said, uh, don't do that. And so it would wait a little while. <laughs> and it would have to be like, all right, uh, so I'm thinking about putting the system to sleep. Let me try that again. And the same thing, you know, in the case of a movie player, it would probably just universally say, like, when I'm playing a movie, anytime anyone asks to put the system to sleep, just say no. Like, when the system asks, just say no. Uh, and the other thing that they would use is uh, another heuristic was they would wait for a minute of no disk activity. Uh, that could also be the way the movie player might do it if it was always streaming bits off of disk or whatever. And it would say, like, we're not going to put the system to sleep until the disk hasn't been used, the hard disk hasn't been used in about a minute. And it's the same type of thing where, uh, say, some operation is going on that's using a disk. And it's like, well, I would put it to sleep because it's been 30 minutes since there are any years of input. But the disk is still going. So I got to wait for one minute of disk activity. Maybe the disk finished what it was doing like two seconds later, but you, the OS would still wait for, have to wait for a contiguous minute. So maybe we go 55 seconds and there's a little flick on the disc. Oh, now the, the OS is waiting again. There was a little bit of disc activity. I got to wait at 60 seconds again, right? This game with this granularity of like trying to, to go to sleep and getting interrupted or waiting for contiguous sections of inactivity even, with no awareness of how long the activity was. Like say you have some sort of Twitter client that tickles the disk every 45 seconds your system's never going to go to sleep because there's never 60 seconds of contiguous disk idle time right so all these strategies led to a situation where a computer that didn't need to be awake would still be awake uh, so in mountain lion apple is trying to move the os and the operating and, and the applications to a new model where applications that have some stake in whether the system is asleep or not Instead of waiting for the system to say, I'm going to put things to sleep, is everyone okay with that? And then vetoing them, and then the system going, geez, I, well, I really want to put the system to sleep. I don't know how long I should wait. 
until I ask that question again. Like, you don't want the OS to keep nagging the apps. Can I go to sleep? Can I go to sleep? Is it okay? You know, they have to wait some amount of time. And again, maybe that application just needs like three more seconds to finish what it's doing. But all it can do is say, nope, vetoing the sleep. Uh, and I assume you'll ask again at some period in the future. It can't tell the thing, okay, can, can I just have three more seconds to finish what I'm doing? Right? Uh, so the new model is something called Apple calls power assertions, which I believe the concept existed before Mountain Lion. Uh, but they want applications to what's called taking a power assertion. And you basically grab one of these little, you can think of it as like a semaphore or whatever in the kernel. That's not what it is. But uh, grab one of these little batons uh, and the system will not attempt to bring, uh, to, to put itself to sleep unless it sees that no one has any of these batons out. Or maybe you think of like the bathroom key at a gas station. I don't know what the good analogy is. But you're, you're, taking, you're, you're taking a power assertion and you're saying, uh, I declare that, you know, the movie player would say, I'm taking this power assertion and I'm saying that I am asserting that, uh, you know, the user is actually active. Uh, and the system cannot, won't even attempt to go to sleep until nobody has any of these assertions that prevent it from going to sleep. And there are a whole bunch of different assertions. There's a couple of different names. If you want to see, if you want to see, for, uh, if you're on a mountain line system, you want to see these assertions, just go to the terminal and type PM set. PM stands for power management, I assume. P-M-S-E-T uh, minus G assertions. And then you will see the list of uh, current power assertions in your system. And it shows the different types. So they're like, prevent user idle display sleep. That's one assertion if you want to prevent the display from going to sleep because the user is idle. Prevent system sleep. That's preventing the entire system from going to sleep. Prevent user idle system sleep. Prevent the entire system from going to sleep because of user idle. External media, user is active. Apple push service task and background task. Uh, it's interesting that Apple push service task is a different one there. So background task is, is another interesting example where it's, it is a power assertion that you can take and you say, look, I know the user isn't here and the user isn't doing anything, but there's something important that I'm doing in the background uh, and that I don't, want the, I don't want the computer to go to sleep because I'm an important background task and I need to run. And a good example of that would be something like Time Machine. Like if you had a system that you, you set it to like uh, go to sleep after like a minute of disk, disk in a, a minute of inactivity or some really short interval of inactivity, it could be that you sit there, you use the computer and every time Time Machine starts to run, you tell it to stop because you're busy and time machine sleeps for like an hour until it tries again. I think like if you say stop backing up and won't try again until like the next hour or something like that. Uh, it could be that, and then, you know, say, or say every time you leave your computer, you put it to sleep manually. Maybe your computer never gets a chance to back up because you use it. You don't let time machine run when you're using it. You always stop it. You put the computer immediately to sleep when, when you're using it. Uh, and it never gets a chance to back up. So then say you, you lose a file or you accidentally delete somebody. Like, oh, let me look in time machine. And you don't see anything there because you never allowed your system to, to back up. Uh, if the time machine demon, you know, in mountain line can now take a background task power assertion and say, I'm about to do a backup and my job is so important that you should not put the system asleep until I'm done. And the good thing about the power assertions is that as soon as all the power assertions are gone, the system knows it can go to sleep. It doesn't have to keep notifying all the applications saying, can I go to sleep? Can I go to sleep? Like, cause it doesn't have to nag them. It's not polling. It just has to look at who has power assertions out. And presumably this has a global view of those in the kernel somewhere to say, you know, uh, are there any outstanding power assertions? And that's a very fast check that doesn't involve any inter-process communication or sending notifications to applications or applications having to respond to those notifications or anything like that. And as soon as all the power assertions are gone, like if it's ready to go to sleep at that second because everything is satisfied, it will just go to sleep. Uh, now, this has caused a little bit of problem with third-party applications because a lot of applications relied on the fact that the system would never go to sleep until there was a minute of disk inactivity. And if an application never did anything about power management, it was just getting by on the fact that it, it itself tickled the disk every minute, 
you can find a, a situation where the app, you know, allows the system to go to sleep and the user's using it. Like, hey, I was, you know, like a movie player, for example, who was relying on the fact that its disk activity alone would cause the system not to go to sleep. Maybe it reads the entire movie into memory uh, through the magic of OS buffering and never actually does tickle the disk anymore. And uh, that causes the system to say, oh, well, there's been no disk activity for a minute. I can go to sleep. And then someone says, I upgraded to Mountain Lion and now I can't watch a movie because every time I want to watch a movie with my favorite movie player, the thing goes to sleep 30 minutes in or 15 minutes in or, you know, 17 minutes in or whatever they have that little slider set to. Uh, a lot of, I've seen a lot of complaints about this, but I think this is a situation where applications just need to be updated for the new model because the new model is definitely more efficient than the old model of polling and, and notifying applications. So uh, I expect as uh, Mountain Lion ages and onward to future versions of the OS, more and more applications will adopt this power assertion model because it's pretty nice. Like it's, you know, instead of the OS asking the apps, it's the apps uh, asserting something. And they and the fact that they can assert all these different nuanced things like I'm I'm a background task or I'm asserting that the user is active at this time or, you know, I just want to prevent the display from going asleep or, you know, uh, they can just indicate their intentions. And then the system can look at the sum of all the intentions indicated by all the running applications and make uh, good decisions. Uh, and on the, on the topic of backups of like a time machine backup that never runs. Uh, the second thing is that, uh, you know. Apple wants you to put your computer to sleep when you're not using it because it uses less battery. And, you know, even if it's not battery, it uses less power, period. You're, you know, trying to be eco-friendly and not be leaving your computer awake all the time uh, if you can help it. But you do want there to be time to do these sort of important tasks. And a lot of the time, like, for example, with time machine backups, you it's better to do those tasks when the user isn't there. It's better to do a time machine backup when you're not messing with someone, you know, because Time Machine can really just thrash your disk to desk, death, especially if it has a lot to back up. So it would be ideal for you to wait until the person goes up and leaves the computer. And now finally you can get a chance to do your backing up. But really, you all, the conflicting requirement is, okay, well, but as soon as the user leaves, don't I want to put the system to sleep to save energy or save battery power? So those two things seem to be at odds. And again, you'd want to avoid the situation where someone's being a good power-saving citizen and the OS is really putting the thing to sleep <laughs> as fast as it possibly can, right. and they just never get a chance to back up. Like, I, I always am afraid of this when people say, oh, I've got a Mac and I use Time Machine. I'm like, is that Time Machine actually backing up? Or are they just never giving it a chance? Like, is it, especially no, I've, like I've the seen the little backup. thing in the menu spin before. It spins sometimes. Yeah, that's, and then maybe they just go to sleep. <laughs> right. They go to sleep and like it never gets through an entire backup because, <laughs> yeah. Or, the, or people like see it spinning and click on it and they say, oh, stop backing up because it's making my computer slow. Like there's a reason that button is there to stop yourself. From, you know, I'd stop it all the time because I don't want it grinding the disk when I'm busy doing something or because I know there's going to be another five gigabytes of changes and don't even bother backing up now because I'm in the middle of like migrating a VM or something. Uh, but you do want it to back up. So this new thing that they have, it's actually not new, but it's new that it's exposed to third party applications or exposed in the OS more is called Dark Wake, which I think is a cool name, a cool dark internal. Dark Wake or Dark Sleep? Dark wake. Dark wake. Dark wake. Yes. Uh, so not not to be confused with deep sleep. Yeah. So as I say in the review, dark wake has actually been around since Snow Leopard, uh, and it was the thing like when you put your Mac to sleep, it was the thing that kept you from uh, ensure that your Mac didn't lose its DHCP lease. Right? right. So DHCP is you get an IP address from some router, and the router wants to know that you're still using that address. So if you put your Mac to sleep and it says to sleep for like 24 hours, the router would say, well, I gave out this address, but I haven't seen that computer in the network in like 24 hours or whatever the hell it is. So I'm, I'm going to give that IP address to somebody else. And that's bad if in reality your computer still needs that IP address, but it's actually asleep. So in Snow Leopard and later, 
Max, even when they were asleep, asleep would wake up, not like wake up, wake up, but like they wouldn't, they wouldn't turn on their screen. They wouldn't turn on their fans. They wouldn't do anything. They would just, just wake up a little bit and, and just send out a little tickler to the, the, the router and say, I'm still using that IP address. So just so you know, uh, actually, I think they would turn on the fans back in the snow leopard. Uh, same thing for yanking out a USB device. If you had a Mac that was asleep and, and had like a thumb drive, not a thumb drive, maybe let's say like an iPod or something that was like mounted in iTunes or whatever, but it was actually one of those things that you can actually just yank out. Uh, of the uh, the USB thing, uh, I guess as iPod touches or later models, where you're allowed to just disconnect it. You don't have to eject from iTunes. It won't complain if you just pull the thing out. Uh, but the system would briefly not wake wake up, but go into dark wake and say, "Oh, the USB configuration has changed. Let me update my device map and so on and so forth." Okay, let me go right back to sleep. Right? That was in uh, in Snow Leopard. Uh, Mountain Lion still does all that stuff, but it also will put itself into dark wake periodically to get what it considers important or useful work done. Uh, now, the thing about Darkwake and Mountain Line for doing useful work is that it only applies to Macs that have built-in SSDs, not like the ones that look like little 2.5-inch discs, but they're actually SSDs or anything like that. Only Macs with the little bare chips shoved in there. So it's MacBook Airs, not including the first one because it had the regular little tiny crappy hard drive in it, uh, but you could replace it with an SSD. Not the first MacBook Air, but it was it only what are the exact models? Built-in SSD storage. That is the I should have had this in my notes, but I don't. Oh, so okay. The MacBook Air mid-2011 or newer, the MacBook Pro with retina display, and that's it. Those are the only models that have built-in, only built-in solid state storage. Because everything else you can get with spinning discs. Like you can you could get a MacBook Pro with spinning disc, but you can also get it with a little SSD the shape of a shape of a spinning disk and Darkwake doesn't work for those that not this part of Darkwake and this part of Darkwake for those few machines but as we all assume basically all Macs eventually will be like this the only only storage you can get is built in SSD what it will do is wake them up but not turn on the fans at all not turn on the screen keep everything in like a low power mode and do things like check email to pull in some more email and stuff or you know re- reload tweets uh, and do time machine backups. And there is a very select class of applications that can specify that they, they are so important that they want the machine to wake up from the dead of sleep periodically to do some important work. And those are only Apple applications at this point. So only you know time machine can make that requirement or spotlight or whatever. Uh, your application can't say, hey, I'm super important and uh, I'm so important that I want you to wake up every hour, even if the computer is asleep, just so I can do my stuff. Now, but the thing about Darkwake is that when when in Darkwake, the CPU and the kernel and the schedule are all completely running. So any application that's like you know anything that's launched in your dock, like it, it's going to be running. It's, it's just like if you woke your Mac up, like in terms of CPU usage. It's not like only Time Machine runs or only a special mail application. They're only the things that can request that the Mac go into Darkwake mode periodically. But once it goes into dark wake mode, every application that's currently running on your system will run. So your Mac, as they said in the WWC seminars, your Mac may find itself running in dark wake mode. Uh, and dark wake mode is a little bit different. Well, you know, first of all, obviously, there's no screen or anything. But second is network connectivity may not necessarily be there immediately. Uh, and I believe do they, they, they I think they turn off the graphics, uh, the GPUs as well. So it's kind of weird for your application to find itself running in an environment where 
it seems like things are broken. Like, right. you know, I can't use the GPU. The network is not reachable immediately. What the hell is going on here? And they just want you to be aware that you could, your app could find itself in that situation and just not to freak out. But what it also means is that if your app has some sort of background thing that it has to do that it does quickly, it may have a chance to do that background thing because the other things that need the system to go into Darkwake, like Time Machine or Spotlight or, or Apple's mail fetching, will cause the entire system to go into Darkwake periodically to get that stuff done. Uh, now, what this is supposed to accomplish is that if you put your Mac to sleep, like in the morning, when you come back home uh, at night and you wake it up, it shouldn't have to refetch all your mail for the day. Like your mail should be there. It shouldn't say, okay, I didn't back up a single thing during the day. Like it should have, you know, taken that time to do a time machine backup or to, you know, index new files with Spotlight. And I think that's pretty cool. Like is, that's one of the things, the, the tensions between putting your Mac to sleep and keeping it awake all the time is like, oh, well, if I put it to sleep, then when I wake it up, I know it's just going to grind, 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 fetch the whole day's worth of thousands of email messages and load a million things into my Twitter stream and, uh, you know, now I have to do my time machine backup because it, it hasn't run all day and it really wants to run. So as soon as I wake it up, it runs and that's annoying and then it makes me want to stop it and then I'm not doing my backups. Uh, this provides like the best of both worlds. Like when you're not there, it's not using its battery power, uh, but occasionally it wakes up in super, you know, low power mode and does important stuff. And you can imagine why it has to be for built-in SSD only because a time machine backup would destroy your battery if it was a spinning disk. Uh, this thing is waking up the system just barely waking it up, keeping almost everything powered down, and then doing its time machine backup, uh, you know, using the SSD. Of course, what is it backing up to? You would hope it's backing up to something that's low power or plugged in. Uh, I wonder if that would be a good experiment to run. If you got a bus-powered SSD that you were backing up to, when you go into Darkwake, does time machine find that drive and back up to it? Uh, I would assume that it does, but if you have a spinning disk, obviously that has external power and that has to be plugged in, and so time machine work that and i suppose if you have a time capsule which is always on when your thing wakes from dark wake it could wake uh, could back up to the time capsule that's more kind of future worldy where your your mac is waking up during the day without you and silently backing stuff up uh, wirelessly to your uh, network storage container uh and the other interesting part of this session which i wish i could share but these are all nda only is mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of things for mac developers to do to make their applications more power efficient and i had some great graphs about is it better to uh, do something serially uh, because you're only using one core and it takes like five minutes? Or is it better to use like, you know, eight cores simultaneously and get the thing done faster, but use massively more power, uh, you know, in a short period of time? And I have a whole bunch of different graphs of strategies of like, if you have to do something, not which will get it done faster, but which will use less power, less overall power. Uh, and the, the main thrust of the talk was that there is some baseline power overhead just to having the system on that you can't get rid of. And that overhead is just always there. And it's more or less constant. And as your task takes longer and longer, you are just multiplying that baseline times. Like, you know, if you have your, your computer on for five minutes, uh, that it's five minutes times that baseline cost of energy usage. That's your minimum. You're always going to use that. And then whatever you use is on top of that. So sometimes using like all the cores and all the GPU to get something on as fast as possible is a good idea because then you only multiply that, that baseline overhead by a very short period of time and it doesn't come to dominate your, your usage. Uh, I'm not sure how many developers think that way for Mac applications, but clearly Apple thinks they should. That not, don't just think about what is the most efficient way to do this to get it done faster uh, or 
what is the easiest way to program it, but also think about what are what are the power usage characteristics of uh, what are the consequences of my decisions in that regard. And that will probably just become more and more important as more and more computers become battery powered uh, and power becomes more of a concern. I think we talked about that in previous shows about how battery technology is not quite advancing at the same speed as everything else. And there are some physical limitations in terms of energy density and storage that we just we need some sort of breakthrough there. And if we don't get it, uh, computers of the future are probably not going to have much, uh, many more watt hours than the current ones do. And the only way we're going to save ourselves from that is by making more efficient software and by making all the components just take less and less energy. And we're doing both of those things, uh, of course. You, know. you were fairly pessimistic on batteries going forward, battery life and batteries and the development of batteries. It's always five years in the future. Yeah. Five years from now, we'll have batteries that have quintupled the energy density. No, probably not. I, it, but I'm, I'm more optimistic about, about us finding components that use less energy. I mean, just look at iOS. Like, who would have thought that you could have, a, like, the iPad, a screen like that with, like, a 10-hour battery life and a computer that can play those kind of games? It's pretty amazing. And it's not amazing because the energy density of the lithium-ion or lithium-polymer battery inside there is so amazingly high, better than it was five years ago. Like, it pro- probably is much better than five years ago, but it's not 10 times better. It's not 100 times better, right? Yeah. But... The power usage of that thing compared to like a laptop with a spinning hard drive and a CD-ROM drive and, and a, you know, a desktop caliber CPU, the power usage of the iPad is 100 times lower than that old laptop. Uh, and so that's, that's what we've done. We've, we've gotten components that take so much less energy that we can get away with putting a little tiny skinny battery in there. And I think that will keep uh, marching up. Let's do a sponsor. Good idea. And uh, this is one we've had before, and they're doing something kind of cool for Syracuse fans. It's Igloo Software. These guys, they, they create a digital workplace. It's a lot of the tools that you use when you're doing collaborative work. A lot of the tools you use right now, they're different. They're different applications. They're in different locations. You can't share things in between them. They might be good services, but they don't bring it all together. And that's exactly what Igloo Software is all about. That you can create updates, you can have discussions, you can share files. You do this with your team or with multiple teams. You do it all in one place. You don't have to use different services. And they brought it all together. And that's what's really, really cool about this is you can adapt it for the way that you work. Maybe you have your small company, you've got a handful of people, you want to share everything with everyone, you can do that. Maybe you're a bigger company and you've got a marketing team, you've got a development team, you've got a project management group, you've got a, you know, C-level group, whatever. It allows you to collaborate no matter how you have things set up. There's things like built-in content moderation. You know, they, they let you collaborate on documents so you're not having to email things back and forth or email invitations to use documents back and forth. It's all right there. And they even have comments and comments can be in line with the document. It's really, really cool. And all of this is SSL. So it doesn't matter if you're behind a firewall or not. You can do it all. And they have some really cool features like the concept of channels, which is similar to hashtags on Twitter, but it's built throughout the entire platform. So if there's a particular area of interest for you, you can subscribe to that channel and you'll get updates to it, whether you're on the dev team or whether you're on the marketing team, doesn't matter. It's all super, super cool. And uh, they're they're doing something nice for our listeners. Uh, if you go to igloosoftware.com slash five by five, they're giving away a John Syracuse uh, toaster oven. Not your actual toaster. I mean, the same one you have, but they're not taking the one that, that John has been using. As far as you know. As far as I know. Maybe you get something worked out. Uh, they're giving one of these things away. 
So if you sign up, you can try. By the way, this this costs ninety nine bucks a month, but that's for a team of up to twenty five people, or you can just get twelve dollars per user. Uh, but you do get a thirty day free trial. So if you go to igloosoftware.com slash five by five, try the thirty day trial. Uh, or if you're really not interested and you just want John's toaster, you can you can check the little box and just just get the toaster. You know, try to win the toaster. But anyway, great sponsor, great software. igloosoftware.com slash five by five. Very nice, very nice page. They very like nice they, picture they, of my they, toaster. Yeah, they have a picture of your toaster. They don't have a they, they don't have a picture of you and the toaster, just Sorry. the toaster. But you get it, it says get get a digital workplace, not a refrigerator toaster. <laughs> I find the idea of a refrigerator toaster intriguing. <laughs> Who knows what our friends over at Samsung will do <laughs> next? I know. I'm sure Samsung already has a refrigerator toaster. I think we talked about that on the toaster episode. Almost guaranteed they have they have a toast a refrigerator that makes toast. They got a lot of stuff over there in Korea. All right. Uh, so I think that wraps up the power usage section, unless you think of something I missed. No, no, I think you've covered it. And we're on to the missing pieces section. This is a section that didn't exist in my original outline. Uh, and I was I was kind of working under uh, what I assume would be a really tight deadline that, you know, could be released anytime in July. So I wanted to have a version <laughs> of the review that was publishable as soon as possible. So I like wanted, you know, the high points, introduction, conclusion. It's like, okay, now at this point, if the thing comes out tomorrow, I can publish this and it won't be terrible. Like it won't be everything that I wanted it to be, but I could publish it and it will seem like a complete review. And then as I had more time, I went back in and added stuff. Uh, one of the sections I added uh, was the Facebook section. Talk about that in a little bit. But another section uh, was about like all the things that I didn't talk about that I thought people would want me to talk about. And a lot of times when I talk about something, it's because it hasn't changed. A lot of people tweeted me and sent emails like, "Oh, nothing about metadata or file systems." Uh, they didn't. They didn't change. Like you know, if I had to go through every item that I've talked about in a past review and say, uh, "Remember all the stuff that I talked about?" And uh, well, it's the same as it was in the last version. And then, of course, there are things I just don't get to because they're, you know, I have to pick what I priorities. But there are a couple items that I thought were important enough that even if they didn't change, I should mention. And one of those is actually the file system. So there's a little heading that says HFS plus forever. And it basically just says, yeah, well, all that stuff I talked about in the Lion Review, where I dedicated an entire section about what's wrong with HFS plus. I linked back to it and said, well, okay, maybe you didn't read about that. If you want to read about what's wrong with HFS plus, here's a link. Go back to the old one. I also talked about core storage, which was uh, new in Lion and about the potential future of repurposing the guts of a logical volume manager to do more interesting file system-y type things. Uh, core storage uh, supports FileVault 2, which is the whole disk encryption system, so they needed some kind of logical volume management to separate the actual uh, distribution of the blocks of data on disk from the file system's view of the world. Uh, it's because, you know, the HFS plus code has no idea that it's running on an encrypted file system. Uh, that's all handled by the core storage layer. HFS Plus hands it off, and then core storage handles all the encryption and stuff like that. Uh, and so I thought core storage might be used as a starting point for a new, better file system or more interesting logical volume management features, like you know, actual real logical volume management where you could take two disks and treat them as one logical disk. You can kind of do that from the command line in a half-assed way filled with bugs on both Lion and Mountain Lion. But, <laughs> you know, like it's not, a pretty harsh description of it. It is like I try. I tried so many times. Like I wanted to do a cool demo, and both of these reviews where I would just it, the thing. The thing about core storage is it can work with disk images too. So maybe I'm increasing the degree of difficulty of saying, okay, I'm going to make two disk images, like the little tiny hard drives, and then I'm going to gang them together into a single core storage volume, and then I'm going to use that as a single volume. And you can kind of get it to work, but it's not 
Like there's a reason this isn't exposed in the GUI, you know. The, the plumbing is there. It kind of mostly sort of works, but it's not something you would ever recommend anybody does. Uh, but the fact that the plumbing is there, in fact, they have their own little logical volume management thing. And the similarities between what core storage does and what a modern file system might do uh, made me think that, all right, so whether or not they have some next generation file system project going in Apple, core storage seems like a sort of next generation piece of the puzzle. And maybe there's something there. And Mountain Lion... If there is something there, it's not a mountain line. I mean, maybe in 10.9. Uh, but I figured that was worth bringing up because this is one of the more pressing concerns and one of the areas where, as Apple calls it, the world's most advanced operating system. I think they say world's most advanced desktop operating system now to differentiate it from, the, they say, the world's most advanced mobile operating system about iOS, uh, which may be closer to the truth than saying it about the desktop OS. But certainly, HFS Plus is not the world's most advanced file system, not by a long shot. So we're still waiting. And we continue to wait. Uh, full screen and multiple monitors. I don't use multiple monitors, but lots of people who do hate how full screen works, and with good reason. Like if you put, if you use app, the official full screen widget thing introduced in Lion, and your app supports it, and you click the little arrow thing in the upper right corner of the window, it will go full screen, and then it will blank out all your other screens, which drives people nuts. Like, no, I want to use the other screens. I want to put stuff there. I want to see my other windows there. I want to see my web browser there, my Twitter feed there, whatever the heck I have over there. And I, you can put pallets and stuff from the application that you made go full screen. You can put them on the other screens, but you can't use them for other applications. And it was like, it was almost like it was being mean to you. It's like, I know you want to see your Twitter client, but I'm putting linen over that whole screen. Nah. And that pissed people off. Well, Mountain Lion changes full screen mode a little bit. But all it does is allow you to pick which screen you want your application to go full screen on. It still does all the blanking stuff. Uh, and I tried to get into their head a little bit and say, why are they doing this? And my guess was that it's not easy to come up with a reasonable policy for how it should work if you make an app full screen and it only covers one of your screens, like when you you know do the gesture to swipe over to your next full screen app. Like, do the other screens change too? Or is it like a a rotating carousel. Uh, there are lots of valid behaviors that make perfectly good sense. And many people wrote in and say, well, what if they did this? And what if they did that? And I'm like, yeah, that, that makes internal consistent sense. But the problem is that different people wrote me with different systems that make internal cons- uh, sense, but are completely in conflict with each other. And Apple's problem is, how do we come up with a system that will not only be internally consistent, but that has a fighting chance of being what people expect? And if I, you know, if, if my email is any indication, these seven different systems that people suggested as alternatives, you know, six of those people would be upset if, if Apple picked one of them. Uh, so they just continue just to do the simple thing, which is we blank out all the screens and then it's clear what happens. You swipe over the next full screen app. We show you that full screen app on the one screen that's not blanked out and every other screen is blanked out. The end. Uh, and it also could be philosophical about, you know, full screen mode is about concentrating on one app. Like that's the whole point of it. So we want to reserve those screens for use by this one application, you know, so you can put your palettes there so a single application can display things on other screens and do stuff like that. But we want you to concentrate on one screen. And that's the whole point of it. And we don't see a point in just putting it full. It's like it's not, it's not a zoom box. It's not maximized on Windows where you're simply full screen mode in, in Lion and in Mountain Lion. It's not supposed to be stretch your window to the full size of the screen and that's it you get a chance to actually show a different UI. I mean, just look at like the notes application where suddenly this big leather flap comes out of nowhere. Not that that's a great example, but it shows that your application in full screen does not have to really bear any resemblance whatsoever to your, to your window that if you just stretched it to full screen. 
Uh, and that's, I think that itself is an example of users' expectations not matching uh, the model of the OS because that may very well be what people are thinking. Like, this is just maximize. It's just a way to make the window big and maybe hide the title bar and, you know, and hide the menu bar as well. And so get a little extra space so I don't have to see the window title bar, I don't have to see the menu bar, uh, but just make it bigger. And if that's what they expect, that may not be what they get with full screen apps. So there's already a conflict there. So I'm not sure what the solution is, but bottom line is Mountain Lion doesn't really doesn't really help people who didn't like the way Lion did it. Automatic termination uh, thing introduced in Lion where there is a policy. I think we talked about this in one of the past Mountain Lion shows. There's a policy that, uh, that dictates when it's okay to kill off an application. Uh, and the policy is like it has no visible windows. Uh, it, it's not the frontmost application. All sorts of things that basically like we can kill it if it's not visible right now. If there's no part of it, like you're not going to be looking at a window and all of a sudden it disappears. Uh, and I think, did we talk about this on a, the first or second Mountain Lion show? Remember we talked about it in the Lion review? I'm anyway, sure, I think we did. And I think you went into more detail about how it decides. And wasn't this something, is this, this isn't under NDA. You can talk about how it makes that decision, right? Yeah. I think we talked about it in the context of becoming more like iOS, because this is very much like iOS, where in iOS, you don't even, like the OS can kill your app at any time. If you're not using it, and that's pretty clear in iOS, because you can only be using one at a time. If you're not using it, the OS just kills it off. But the difference is that in iOS, the little application switcher thing always shows that app, whether it's still running or not. And if you go back to it and tap on it, it'll just relaunch it and bring you back to your past place. And Apple is trying to bring that type of experience to the Mac where people don't have to remember to quit applications. Like when there's nothing going on in the application anymore, the OS will quit the application and reclaim its memory and do all sorts of tricky things like that. They'll also do a case where they, uh, when you quit the application, they actually keep it running for you. So when you click on it again, it looks like it relaunches instantly, but actually the OS never killed it. It's basically moving to a model where the OS figures out which application should be in memory and which shouldn't. But the rest of Mac OS X doesn't fit with that model. Like, when something, when an application is automatically terminated or terminated in any way, it, it can leave the dock. Uh, unless it was one of those things that you permanently put in the, in the dock. So it's weird. It's like, well, when I quit an application, does this icon disappear from the dock? Well, sometimes, but it depends. Well, if I launch an application and I move it in the dock, then I quit it, then it stays. And that's kind of weird. Like, we're all used to these rules, but they, they try explaining these to somebody about what happens when an application isn't running anymore. Does it stay in the dock or not? It's, it's pretty complicated, but... One of the possibilities is that it will leave the dock. And so preview is a great example. If you use preview to look at a window and you option click away from it because you're a power user and you know how to hide, it, hide the previous application and show the, you know, the next one, right? Now preview has no visible windows. And frequently automatic termination will go, oh, preview, not the frontmost application, has no visible windows, boom, I'm killing it. And if preview is not a permanent resident of your dock, you option click away from it and its icon disappears from the dock. And then when you want to go back to it, you, you maybe you'll reach back down to the dock with your mouse or you'll try to alt tab over, not alt tab, option tab, sorry. Uh, you, <laughs> you'll try to command, not option. Try one more time. Command tab. There we go. <laughs> we all call it alt tab. You'll try to command tab over to it. It's not in the application switcher anymore. It's not in the dock anymore. You're like, I was just using preview like literally a second ago. Where did it go? Uh, oh, automatic termination killed it. And that drives people bonkers. Uh, so, if, if the UI elements in the OS behave like they do on iOS, maybe that would help. People say, oh, just leave it, leave it in the application switcher. So when I hit Command-Tab, it will still be there. Uh, that would eventually result in the Command-Tab switcher 
growing to very large size, like it does in iOS. Like if you just keep swiping to the right in the little iOS application switcher, you'll see applications you launched like, you know, three days ago. I think there's some limit and I think things do go off the end, but people might complain about that too. Like if I'm hopping around amongst three applications, don't keep showing that application I quit 10 minutes ago, you know? And it's like, you want the OS to read your mind. Like, oh, that one, uh, I quit manually, so it shouldn't be in the list. Maybe that could be, you know, some sort of policy decision. You keep coming up with increasingly complicated ways to try to get it so the UI elements reflect your wishes correctly. Like when I manually quit it, then you should definitely take it out of the dock. Unless I told you you have to keep it in the dock and you should also take it out of the application switcher. But if it's automatically terminated, keep it in the uh, application switcher. Unless it was automatically terminated and I don't care about it because I really am not coming back to preview for a while. So then it should be, you know, it gets really, really complicated. And this, this uh, automatic termination is another place where OS 10 is in conflict with itself. It wants to be like iOS, but it can't really be like iOS, and it really shouldn't be completely like iOS. So they, they want the benefits of the user not having to worry about applications. Like, they're afraid of the person who launches an app, closes the last window in it, and doesn't realize that doesn't quit the application, and then leaves that application running forever. And it's, you know, eventually it'll get swapped out, but then if they accidentally click on it, now this, you know, 300 megabyte application that hasn't been used in, in six weeks gets swapped back in from the swap files and like they would rather have that application not be in memory and so they want some way to kill it off when the OS thinks it should be killed off even if the user forgets to quit it. Uh, going so far as to have many Mac OS 10 applications adopt the model where when you do close the last window they quit like I mean calculator was the obvious easy example used to be a desk accessory where this was always kind of the rule but you know if you close the calculator window the calculator application would uh Actually, I should check if that's the case. That's still the case? With calculator? Yeah, calculator. Yeah, if you, clo- if you close the window, it closes the app. Yeah, so there's a whole s- section in the HIG that's uh, in the Human Interface Guidelines that says when is it okay to quit the app when you close the window and when is it not okay to do that. Uh, but that's confusing too. Like if you've ever had to explain this stuff to, like sometimes we just kind of get a sense for it. Well, obviously when I hit the little red box on the calculator, it's going to quit. But obviously when I hit the little red box on my last Safari window, Safari's not going to quit. Well, how do you know that? We just feel like we know it intuitively because it makes some kind of sense, but try explaining that to a new user. It really doesn't make as much sense as you think it does. Uh, and this is all something that Apple's trying to solve with automatic termination. I'm saying, well, we, we don't want people leaving like every app running forever. And we've all seen the case, especially on, on classic macOS, but still on macOS 10, where applications are sitting there running with no open documents, and the people who are using the Mac have no idea that those applications are still running. Right, because they they closed all the windows, and as far as they're concerned, they're done. And you could blame that on usage of Windows, where you know that's how they learned how to do Windows. You get the little X until the until all the, the windows are gone, and then the application is gone. If that, or if their expectation just comes from you know maybe they never even use Windows, but that's just how they expect it to work. That's bad for the system to leave those things resident in memory, and so they're trying to take over control uh, from the user and give it to the OS because the OS knows better when it needs resources. KJ Healy points out that uh, uh, I just feel like I know it intuitively because I learned it is one of the great nerd sins. There's, some, <laughs> there's something to that. The problem is the word, with the word intuitively. Back in the old intuitively wards in 1980, the common refrain was the only thing that's intuitive is the nipple, which I'm sure a pediatrician can uh, tell us. It's not the case. There are many other things that are intuitive, but intuitive meaning like you don't have to be taught it. So when babies are born, they don't need to be taught to suck on nipples. Uh, probably because the ones that didn't know how to suck on nipples all died and didn't reproduce, and so we just have the ones left that know how to do that. But anyway, the point is, intuitive meaning doesn't need to be taught. But when, when we're talking about computer interfaces, of course, everything about a computer interface needs to be taught, unless they're nipple-powered, IBM ThinkPad. Uh, <laughs> so, do, do you think that the dock itself, as uh, 
uh, J.M. Ibanez is saying if they want to do full auto termination, they should get rid of the dock or replace it. Do you think that the dock is in some way counterintuitive that it is creating confusion in this regard? Well, they, there's that word intuitive again. Yeah. Like, I, I said the word like that we just feel like we know it or it feels like it's intuitive because through experience and use, you will find patterns that you identify, you know, it, even if they don't exist and even if they weren't intended and humans are pattern, pattern recognition machines. And once you've established those patterns, then if something that fits within that pattern, it seems intuitive to you because you didn't have to learn that new thing. You just applied an existing pattern to it. Uh, the doc itself I think is much more intuitive in this regard than everything that replaced simply because it's, you know, it's uniform. It's always visible. It's fairly, you know, it's, it's fairly simple and iconic. It is a vast simplification over the accommodations they had in classic Mac OS with the uh, tear off process menu and the control strip and the Apple menu and the finder and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, I've, I spent many years complaining about all the things the doc does poorly, especially for power users. Uh, and when I revisited Mac OS X in that, in that article about uh, taking a 10-year retrospective, I came down on the, side, on the side of the doc and saying, for as bad as it is for power users, the simplification was really important to make Mac OS X more friendly. And now we're getting to the point where these policies that we're talking about of what things appear in the doc and don't, is making even that simple element more complex. Uh, part of the problem is that I think the the problem domain is complicated. What we want to do with Macs is more complicated, where, where you have more balls in the air, we're juggling lots of things at the same time. And it's harder to make an interface that does that. You know, if we just made the Mac work, work like iOS, we could use all of iOS's conventions, no problem. But we don't want to do that. We want a system that does more, that lets us be more flexible with stuff. Uh, so I'm I'm not sure what the solution is. That's why I'm not like strongly advocating, oh, you, you should make things stay in the dock or not stay in the dock or stay in the app switcher or not stay in the app switcher or, or increasingly complicated policies related to that that try to give us an experience that is more consistent, that allows the OS to kill off applications that don't have Windows, but makes us unaware that it's doing that, you know? I mean, maybe, maybe the solution is eventually we'll have so much RAM and so much CPU power and such a long battery life that these concerns will become less important. And this is, this itself is a transitional phase where, Oh, remember when we had to do all these sorts of crazy things because of resource constraints and we had to devise these crazy policies and interfaces that were super limiting hmm. because everything was in service of preserve the battery, preserve Ram. Uh, but the other side of that coin is we're never going to have enough resources for everything we want to do. Like the things we do expand to fill all, all available resources. And if you had told someone 30 years ago that a phone would have this kind of computing power and memory, they'd be like, Oh, you, that it's like infinite memory. You'll never need to take anything out of memory. And we say, actually the entire policy of the OS is based on being able to tear stuff out of memory constantly. Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, well, we have a, you know, we can't say email or web browser because they wouldn't knows what those were, but you know, we have a game and it takes like a gig of Ram. You're like, what are you doing that you're taking a gig of Ram in a game? It's like, well, there are textures and the screen is like eight bazillion pixels big. Yeah. And, I mean, if, like, the, if the resources are there, we'll use them. We'll use them all. We'll, we'll need more. It doesn't matter how many resources you have. You always want more. Yeah. I mean, I mean you're, the, is, you're the one that ruined many people's <laughs> iOS experiences well, because all of a sudden after listening to that episode and they realized their devices were slow, they thought they were fast and they realized they were really waiting. You are. You're waiting. You're waiting a lot. And don't forget about the, the lag in you thing. <laughs> the, right. Our own built-in lag. Yeah, that's you can't ever get can't ever escape that. You could jack to the matrix, I guess, to get rid of that. But I don't I don't know if we really noticed that. 
the way the way that we now notice that our iPhones are really slow. Uh, you probably no- notice if you play fighting games. <laughs> you know, you, you've got all this input lag, and you got the. Uh, and then we the talked about how the the robot that beats you in uh, rock yeah. paper scissors all the time. That's right. You'll notice it. You'll definitely notice it there. Like I, I mean, suck. if you need if you need proof that whenever we make an artificially intelligent machine that it's just going to wipe us out, that's the only proof you need is that machine, that robot that. Yeah, and, and it does it by cheating. Yeah, it's not cheating when. Uh, this is a different definition. Actually, too bad we probably won't get to my other topic. But I had a whole section on that uh, whole thing about the uh, difference differences in orders of magnitude of, of lag and what that makes. All right, so that's uh, automatic termination. Do you want to do a sponsor before I do grab bag? Sure thing. Its sponsor uh, is hover.com, simplified domain management, register.com.net.org. I like the .co. I like the .tv. You're still, you can still get some of those. Uh, but Hover, they make it really, really easy. You just go there. There's a search box. You type in the domain name you want. If it's available, hit the little plus. You got it. If it's not available, they'll tell you. They'll come up with alternatives. You don't know what domain you want. You type in some words. They'll suggest some. That's it. It's a whole service. You say, well, don't they do other things? Yeah, they have who is privacy. They make domain name transfers really easy. And if you're like me and you don't, really remember the right way the 50 different steps that you need to transfer a domain from another registrar uh, they'll do it for you and they'll do it for you for free with their valet service and if you don't want to have to do it in front of a computer you just want to tell a person on the phone transfer this domain for me they'll do it they've got a toll-free number they're there 24 hours a day seven days a week and the people actually understand what it is you're trying to do and they're really nice and they're well they're canadian so anyway, you could you could go there. They have built-in DNS management. They have they even do email hosting. You name it, they do it. And they got a no-hold policy when you call them. Never put you on hold. Really great folks. Great supporters of 5x5. So the next time that you want to register a domain name or if you're even slightly unhappy with your current registrar, could you consider transferring it over to these guys? Hover.com slash Dan sent me, one word. You'll get 10% off everything that you do. Dan sent me as a code to use. 10% off, use it over and over. I promise you will enjoy their simple-to-use interface. Go check them out, hover.com. Grab bag. Grab bag. Not to be confused with bulk bag. Not, not bulk totally, bag. Totally different thing. <laughs> it doesn't have the same ring to it. I don't remember the first time I did a grab bag section. It must have been many, many years ago. Uh, and I remember the first time I did it, though. Like uh, I don't remember what year it was, but I remember the thought going through my mind. Like I've got a bunch of other stuff that I want to talk about, but none of it is important or big enough to have its own section. So let me just write grab bag and I'll just write a bunch of stuff. And I always assumed I would go back and change it, but I didn't. It just stayed as the grab bag section. So it lives on. The hardest part of these reviews now is trying to write an introduction to the grab bag section that is not like a verbatim repetition of the introduction to all the other grab bag sections. Uh, because I always, I, I remember this year I wrote the introduction to the grab bag section and I like, uh, I was doing the first grab bag item and I got stuck and I was like, is this, let me look at what this was like in line. And I went back to the line review and I looked at that section and it was next to the intro. And I looked at the intro and I had basically unknowingly just plagiarized myself. <laughs> like I'd written almost the same sentences word for word. It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> People are amazing this way. I always talk about this. In what does that say to, about you, though, as a human being? Well, I, I always relate this back to, to me and and John Gruber, where there, there have been many instances where people people are weird like this. Or not, maybe it's not weird. Maybe it's expected. Where given the same set of inputs, if you keep enough enough of the other variables like 
you know, from varying, you'll get this. It's pretty deterministic. You get the same result out. So my inputs were like, you're writing a Mac OS 10 review. Uh, you're starting the grab bag section. The grab bag section is about the same thing. It's always been about write an introduction. And the words that come out of me are the same words that I wrote, you know, a year ago or two years ago at the end, because the inputs were the same, like the inputs where you're writing a review. It's the grab bag section. You know what the grab bag section is about. It's a Mac OS 10 review. Go. Uh, and uh, Gruber and I, the, the thing that continues to, well, it shouldn't, doesn't even surprise me anymore. I don't know if it surprises him, is that given the same inputs, like the same rumors or pieces of information or knowledge about something, we very frequently have the same outputs. Like, oh, what do you think of this? And if we, if we really have all the same information, we tend to come to very similar con- conclusions uh, to the point where, like, I remember I had a podcast where I did a whole show on something and then after I did the show, people were like, oh, you know, you just basically did the exact same thing as this Gruber talk in, in New Zealand uh, from some from the WebStock conference. And I go look at the, the, the conference thing. I'm like, oh, my God, we're using like the same screenshots in our examples. And I had never seen that before. Uh, and the reverse has also happened where uh, he'll, you know, mention something or write something. And I'll, I'll point him to like me saying the exact same thing uh, in an article two years earlier or on Twitter or whatever. And like he had not seen that uh, at all. It's not like the case where you see it and forgot that you saw it, but like literally you know, we would not have seen each other's things. We just simply given the same inputs. We frequently, well, not that frequently, but like to a surprising degree, come to the same conclusions. And I don't know if that's because we have the same experiences early with the Mac, or we just have similar personalities in that regard because we differ on so many other things. Uh, but that's, I mean, people are deterministic machines, I guess in, in many, in many more ways than, than you would think. Uh, at least I feel better when I'm plagiarizing myself. Uh, I feel a little bit embarrassed when I do it because I'm like, if someone reads me religiously and they read this, uh, like they're going to see, oh, John always uses these expressions, always uses these same sentence forms and always says the exact same things in front of the grab bag section. Uh, so I try to mix it up a little bit, but it's a, it's a constant battle. Well, your as, concern is that someone is going to see it and, and actually believe that you were too lazy to write as, something new and that you just we're copying, cutting, and then you you begin to question the whole validity of the whole review. What if he's just it's, cutting it's, and pasting? I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to think I'm lazy. I think uh, what I want is for the person who reads every single thing that I write to be entertained. And you can't be entertained as much by, by hearing the same things again. Right? You want to hear something new. Obviously, I'm going to have new points, but like the, the mechanical nature of the grab bag is like for people who have never read before, I have to explain what the grab bag section is. I have to say that, right? If you already know, then it's all review to you. But I want to at least explain what the grab bag section is in a way that is not verbatim the exact same as the last time, just because I know that you super fan read the last time and you want to read different sentences this time, you know? So uh, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not like I'm, I'm going to think they think less of me. It's, I think it will be a more boring experience for them if I use, it's more boring experience for me. I'm like, geez, you're really the same exact, you know, it, I, I want it to be different. <laughs> we just spent 10 minutes on the introduction to the grab bag section. All right. What's actually in the grab bag section? Oh, I, I should explain what the grab bag section is. Can I do it with different words? Probably I can when I'm speaking. <laughs> Instead, I just explained it. It's, it's stuff that's too small to have its own section. Uh, and, and this year, and I think last year and the year before, I probably, I tried to talk about how like people always say, all oh, these reviews are so long. And they like, look at this comprehensive review. People say comprehensive when they mean long, but that's not what comprehensive means. Comprehensive means like all encompassing and it covers every possible. It doesn't. Like my reviews are anything but comprehensive. They go into tremendous depth in particular areas and just totally miss other things. That's the opposite of comprehensive. Uh, I hope I go into depth on things that I think are significant for this release. Like maybe they're not 
you know, people say, oh, this is a really super important Mac OS 10, part of Mac OS 10. You didn't mention it at all. I said, yeah, but is it significant when taken as a whole? Like, uh, if I talked about it at length in the previous review and it hasn't changed that much, I'm not going to talk about it now. It doesn't mean it's less important, but I'm trying to do, you know, an overall narrative. You know, I'm not saying you have to go back and read every single one of my reviews, but for the people who do, or at least you know about Mac OS 10, it's kind of like I'm doing like Delta updates where what's important now. Uh, but there's always little stuff that's just small and dinky. And and I'm not even going to catch all the small dinky things either. That's the other thing about comprehensiveness where like, oh, this this thing, this button changed from blue to green or they changed the wording of this dialogue. I can't believe you didn't mention that. And I get tons and tons of those replies. Like some sometimes they're indignant. Sometimes they're insulting. We're like, you know, obviously, if you paid any attention to this operating system, you'd have known they changed this checkbox. Uh, sometimes they're just like, hey, I don't know if you noticed this, but this checkbox changed or whatever. Uh, well, the way I judge that feedback is not on the the tone of the person sending it because people can be obnoxious or not obnoxious. It's do I actually regret not talking about that thing they pointed out, regardless of how they pointed it out to me. If they pointed it out to me in an obnoxious way or a good way, all I want to say is, okay, fine. Ignore the sender. Look at that thing. Do I regret not writing about that? Most of the time, I feel okay about not writing about it. Uh, and this is regardless of whether I knew about it ahead of time. I mean, a lot of these things I did know about and they just had to be cut. But sometimes someone will point out something that I didn't know about. And that's really where you go, okay, look, did I not write about this because I didn't know about it? Or did I not write about this because it actually isn't that important? And that's, it's difficult to be honest with myself about that. But what I try to do with the grab bag is that's the place where I put in the little things that I notice. And then I think I have something, at least something like a sentence, a word, a screenshot, something to say about that I think will be entertaining or interesting or informative. Because I'm never going to be able to do like the screenshot tour of the OS where every single window dialogue option and feature that's changed is documented. I'm never going to do that. I don't do that. I never have. Other sites do that much better than I do. And like, that's the purpose of their things. Like you want to see it, the UI delta of the whole operating system, go to the site and there'll just be a series of screenshots with captions explaining with little annotations saying this change, that change, that change. Like that's not what I'm doing, but I do like some of those things. So that's what's in the grab back section. Uh, maybe the, maybe the big long introduction is useful because the things in it are actually not that interesting. Let's say, uh, system preferences, system preferences is one, one of the most fun, uh, the general pain in the system preferences, one of the most fun things, uh, in the OS, because back in the, the early days, it was the place where that little appearance pop-up menu was, and you could change it from blue to graphite. And we were also excited about aqua, like, Oh, and everything comes in candy color. <laughs> but if you don't like the colors, you can change it to blue and just, imagine that menu changing to be like the appearance menu with the appearance manager yeah. in, in classic Mac OS. Like, oh, there's going to be crazy themes in there and things are going to look awesome. Nope, it's just blue and graphite. And Ten years later, yeah, never, years later nothing different. Now, what do you yeah. use? Do you use blue or graphite? Blue, always blue. And the main reason I use always blue is like graphite was there to to assuage the the graphic designers who were like, I don't want your stupid OS colors mucking with my visual sense of color balance because colors look different when they're next to other colors. So people who work on in visual design don't want the chrome of the operating system screwing up their color perception because that's not what's important. Like they want to control their their color perception entirely. Uh, and that's valid. But I always thought it was kind of like a big FU from Apple where they said, OK, fine, we'll give you a graphite mode. And the graphite mode is like blue tinted gray. Like, like it's not neutral at all. No. Like, you know, so this, this won't affect your color perception. Let's give you something that's gray, but it's not really gray. It's still, like, this is a big FU. And, but the thing is, they, 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 they said, okay, you know, they, they took it. They, they swallowed it. They said, oh, great. I always go in graphite mode. It's much more neutral. Like, I don't, I mean, 
maybe someone could tell me whether a slightly off gray is better than like bright primary colors, but it seems to me that it was like a, it was like the Sosumi uh, naming of the uh, alert sound from Mac OS X or the butthead astronomer. I'm not going to explain those all. Google them yourself. Uh, <laughs> that one snuck past people. That was ages ago. But anyway, what they put in the general preference pane is just this weird menagerie. Of, like, I mean, it's general. Like, it's stuff that doesn't have another category. So all sorts of interesting stuff appear in there. Uh, like the scroll bar settings in Lion suddenly appeared in there. Show scroll bars automatically, you know, always or only when scrolling. Uh, and all the scroll jumping stuff and the, the uh, LCD font smoothing. Like, wouldn't that be like in a text control? No, it's in general. Uh, <laughs> weird stuff there. So they, they continue to move stuff around like this time. They coalesced all the recent items into a single item. Instead of saying how many recent apps, how many recent documents, how many recent servers do you want to appear in those recent menus? They just coalesced it into one. Uh, and that was one of those clever moves where it's like, look, is anyone independently adjusting how many recent apps, documents, and servers there are? I'm sure there are people out there who were. And I'm sure those people were irate. This setting had been coalesced into a single menu, although I imagine you can just peel us hack them back to what your separate values were. Uh, but the vast majority of users never touched that setting. Even power users. Like, have you ever touched that? Do you change it to something? No. Like, do you even know what it's set to? It's like whatever the <laughs> defaults are, right? Yeah, like, just take the defaults. They made like a pretty shrewd judgment here saying, look, maybe it just felt like they needed more room in this. So they just wanted to simplify. Like this is on someone's you know, list somewhere. It's like, why is there so much stuff in this window? Why do they have three separate pop-up menus with, with accounts for apps, documents, and servers? So those really need to be independently adjustable. Can't we coalesce that to one? And it's not like they were running out of room or this was a giant dialogue and they had to shrink it. It's just the culture of simplification uh, dictated that, you know what? Let's change that three into one. And I, I haven't heard a single complaint about that on the web. And I'm sure the... 10, 115 people who actually are pissed about it just Googled and figured out how to do a P-list hack to get their things back and grumble a little bit and say, damn, that app always taking away my options, which is kind of true, but it's always a balancing act. How many people are you pissing off? How many people are you pleasing? And Apple it, it tends to err on the side of pleasing people with simplification at the cost of people who want more complexity. Uh, the other one, speaking of uh, pissing people off, <laughs> is they got rid of the smooth scrolling checkbox, which was like, uh, what did it say? I wish I had an earlier version of the OS up here. It used to say uh, smooth scrolling or not smooth scrolling. And smooth scrolling means that, this is very difficult to explain in, in the, the article. Smooth scrolling means that when, you, when you're looking at, say, like a web page and you hit the page down key on the keyboard or the space bar or whatever and you want to go to the next screen full of stuff, what smooth scrolling would do is animate the content area and slide it up. So there would be a point in time where the, where the content is slid up a little bit, then a little bit more, then a little bit more, then a little bit more, and eventually you see the next screen full. Uh, and that happens over the course of, you know, fractions of a second, but it animates it and it slides the entire display up. Non-smooth scrolling is the way that was done before we had the computing power to do smooth scrolling, which is a relatively recent advancement, especially on handhelds and stuff. Uh, you'd hit page down and it would redraw the entire content area with the new content. There would never be a time where the current content on the screen was halfway off the screen or three quarters off the screen. It would just be like, here's the old content. And then we draw the new content. It does not slide the old content to show the new content. And uh, first, a lot of people didn't even know what sc smooth scrolling off was, so that had to be exciting. The second is people say, well, why would you ever want that old way? Isn't that old way, like, it's kind of like non-live scrolling. Do you remember that? Yeah. You're old enough to remember yeah. that. Yeah. We used to, used to grab the scroll thumb, yeah. and you would move it to a new position, and while you're moving that little scroll thumb, nothing would be happening. No, you would just you'd move it, and you'd let go, and boom. And then you would see where you landed. <laughs> yeah, you did, it, it was a guessing like a game. game. You, you could also click on the scroll bar, and it would... You, it would it would jump down and the whole thing you never really knew where you were going to be 
Yeah, and it was all because, you know, we, we didn't have the computing power to slide the content as you scroll. Like, nothing was happening when you were scrolling, sliding that scroll thumb in the classic macOS. Like, when, you know, same thing with pulling down a menu. You pulled down the menu and the whole system came to a halt. You know, no, no events were going to applications. It was all just tracking your menu to make that super responsive. And it was, and that was important, but we're long since past the point now where we have the technology to do things smoothly. Well, this is an instance where you're not grabbing the scroll thumb and moving it. You're typing something in a keyboard, page down, spacebar, whatever. Uh, and it's, do you want it to do an animation or do you just want it to show you the new area? And I don't want it to do the animation. And that may sound like a cranky old man thing, but there's actual, you know, there's, there's concrete reasons for it. Uh, the, my personal reason is that I find it distracting. And the larger sort of uh, meta reason is that, like, why is it distracting? Why do you find it distracting? Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a logical explanation for that. The motion draws the eye of, of people. I think we talked about this in uh, previous shows about mountain lion, about animation. We're, you know, predatory beings that are, are sensitive to motion. And when something is moving, my eye is drawn to the motion. But in this case, the motion is not important because I triggered it. Like, I told it to go to the next screenful. And yet I still find my eyes trying to track or noticing that that animation, which even though intellectually I know is not important and I know I triggered it myself, like I'm not confused about what's moving. Like I know I triggered it. Why are my eyes trying to track that? It's I find it uncomfortable. Now, different people have different tolerances for for moving things. As if you want to Google for uh, motion sickness and people with steady eyes, there's lots of studies about uh, people who are predisposed to be uh, good at or prefer or be drawn to tracking moving objects. I think that one of the studies did was like professional tennis players where obviously they're tracking a fast moving small object with their eyes and the people who are professional tennis players are very, very good at that. Those type of people, there was a, there was a correlation between that and motion sickness. Those type of people, the people with what they referred to in the study as steady eyes, uh, were more likely to get motion sick or get motion sick sooner than people who did not have steady eyes. So I don't know where I fall in that spectrum. All I know is that I find the motion of this type of thing distracting. And scrolling happens all day long, like constantly scrolling everything, right? I don't want my eyes to be drawn to that motion. I don't want to, to be uh, to have that discomfort. I want to hit space bar or page down. I just want to see the content as fast as I possibly can. I don't, I don't, I don't need the animation to show me what we're doing here is we're taking your content and we're sliding it upwards. So don't be confused by what you're going to see there. You know, oh, oh, the whole screen change. You know, you've seen that happen in the old mode with some people where you'll, you'll hit the space bar on a web page. And if they don't know that you hit the space bar, they're like, wait, what am I looking at now? Because like everything that was previously on the screen is gone. And now there's a new screen full. So most web browsers have some sort of overlap to give you something to anchor onto. But some of them don't or some apps don't. And that can be confusing, especially if you don't trigger the action. But even if you do trigger the action, we've all seen somebody like hit page down and be totally confused about where they are. Because nothing they had previously seen in their window is there anymore. For them, and, uh, yeah, and that's why I believe the default is accurate, for them, that animation is useful. Because they can say, oh, all right, I see something different than I saw before, but I know why now. It's because the whole thing slid upward, and everything that I used to be looking at is now above where I can see, but now I'm looking at a new screen full of stuff, or a new window full, not screen full. I keep saying screen full, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> now, so, but wasn't, this, wasn't this old scroll behavior back in the, in the day when you'd move the window and you'd just see the outline of the window? Oh, that, that's a similar example where you, when we dragged windows around, we didn't have the computer I do miss that. to show the contents. Yeah. I, and that's a case where I don't, obviously, I don't, you know, I don't want to return to outline thing because that, that's a case where I'm, the motion of my hand, I want to see that reflected in the motion of the window. Uh, it's not drawing my eye necessarily like it's a continuous motion. Same thing with scrolling. I like it when I move the scroll thumb and I can see the content moving. I wouldn't want to go back the other way. It's just this particular thing where I have discrete action 
page down, space bar, home, end, where I do not want to see an animation. I want I want that discrete action to, re- to result in a discrete change, not a not a continuous change over time that, that lands on the the destination. Uh, so I, I recognize that I'm in the minority. When I wrote the review, uh, what I said was that uh, I could. I, so as soon as I saw that it was option was gone, I went back to my Lion system. And I use the Apple has some great debugging tools. I know a lot of non nerds probably don't know about these, but there's tools like a SC usage and FS usage, which will show you the the uh, system calls or the file system interaction of your processes. You can like grab onto a running process and get you know or dtrace, which I talked about several reviews ago, which is even more complicated. It's pretty easy to just quickly fire up a command line tool for a running application and see what it's doing. So what I did was I just pointed FS usage at system preferences. I hit the checkbox and I looked at what files were being modified. Uh, and saw, you know, that it found that found the property list file that contained the thing that checkbox corresponded to, and looked at the property list and saw that the item was called NS scroll animation enabled. And I saw when you hit the checkbox, it changes that from true to false. Or no, it was Apple scroll animation enabled. Sorry. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, on a mount line system, I can just do defaults right, you know, minus G for global domain, Apple scroll animation enabled, minus bool, no, and that should turn it off. But it didn't. And I was very sad about that. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, it was like, very sneaky. Like, I, was, I was so, I mean, I, I, usually I don't do this work. Usually I'm, I'm, this is a part where I don't have time to do this most of the time. Or, or D-Trust, as someone points out, yes. Although I like S-Trace better than D-Trust. Uh, again, Google these if you want to know. Uh, usually I don't look these up myself. Usually I will say, okay, I'm sure someone will find that. And within the first you know, day of the OS being out, I'll see what the thing is. And I won't have to look it up myself. Because it's come, I'm not that good with, with Mac, the Mac OS X debugging tools. Uh, real programmers, real Mac developers are much better with them than I am because they use them all day. So I'll figure I'll let them find where those keys are and they'll tell me. But this is a case where I cared enough that I was going to go hunt the thing down myself. And I found that I found the actual key that it uses and it didn't work. Uh, what I should have done is read the stupid release notes because one of the release notes actually, or the, not the release notes, the API disks for Coco. Uh, and in them it was the thing that says, oh, we took this way and the, the parameter you have to change is not Apple scroll animation enabled, but NS scroll animation enabled. Uh, so, uh, you know, true to form, like I wrote in the review, look, I actually did the work this time. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't lazy and wait for someone else to do it. I actually looked it up and I found the value and it didn't work. I'm very sad. Uh, but then still after the review was published, someone said, oh yeah, it's not Apple scroll animation. It's NS scroll animation. And that works. Uh, so I'm fine with them removing that option. I set that P list value. Uh, I set it that way in all the mountain lion systems I use. Uh, I don't know, like, I, I'm sure the default should be what it is. I'm not sure the checkbox should be gone entirely, but I guess it depends on what, how many people are sensitive to motion, this kind of motion. Are we like 1% of the population, 0.001%? Uh, they probably made the right decision to take the checkbox away, but I would be very upset if the option to get rid of it went away as well. Like the P-list thing stopped working. Uh, let's see, we got desktop and screensaver. Lots more pretty pictures, lots of screensaver, uh, lots of screensavers with uh, National Geographic images and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Lots of people who are into screensavers were upset that they took away screensavers. This is another one of those weird cases where it, se- it seems almost punitive, like the RSS screensaver. Some people thought that was cool. It would show your RSS feeds with this cool, you know, quartz composer animation where the headlines would fly in and stuff like that. But it's kind of cool to like if you have a bunch of screens in an office to have them showing like an RSS feed, right? That's like a little news ticker, a cool flashy news ticker. Well, you know, that was one of the screenshots I heard someone say, hey, they took that screenshot, that screensaver away. Why, why would you take that away? Like, it uses no memory, no computing resources if it's not used. 
it's not using like incompatible technologies that like aren't supported anymore, like core animation and all that stuff is, continues to be supported. It seems weird that they would take away your favorite screensaver when you update the operating system, unless there was some reason to take it away, right? Like, uh, and it was using a framework that was out of date or it was 32-bit and they didn't want to update it to 64-bit or it wasn't Intel compatible, all sorts of things like that. But I, uh, they took away a lot of screensavers that I can't see why they were taking them away, except for what I talked about before, which is simplification. Why do we have to have 8 billion screensavers? Why don't we just figure out the three screensavers people mostly like, and it turns out people mostly just want to see pictures of their kids in, in a slideshow. <laughs> so let's, make, let's make seven slideshow things. And they, they imported all the cool like Apple TV style uh what do they call them? Like uh, shifting tiles, sliding panels, uh, like uh, all sorts. Of, if you have an Apple TV, you know, there's a whole bunch of settings in that for it, too. Different ways to show images floating around. They're really cool and they look nice, uh, but they just they put all the wood behind that arrow. They said screensavers. What you get is a couple of options that we think are fun, but mostly it's just a million slideshows because that's what we found is like the 80 percent solution. So sometimes it seems punitive, but like. I know the explanation. It makes sense to me. I think they're probably right that most people do just want to see slideshows. But it, I mean, I didn't care about the screensavers at all. But for the people who do, I, I can I can relate to how they feel. Like you took away my screensaver. Come on. Uh, <laughs> it could be the case that you can just keep those screensavers around. They still work fine. I didn't even try it. That, but that probably works. Like these are just loadable bundles. And you can go grab the dot screensaver bundle from a line machine and probably throw it into the folder. and It'll probably work fine. But if you're a non-nerd, but you just happen to like the RSS screensaver, maybe you don't know how to do that. So it's it's as if it's totally gone. Yeah. Uh, mission Control, they brought back... Uh, I don't use Mission Control much. I don't, I don't use Expose much. If I find myself using Expose, what I think to myself is my workflow is completely broken down. If I find myself resorting to, okay, 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 just show me little thumbnails of all the images because I can't find that freaking thing. That used to happen to me a lot with those little... Uh, license agreement windows that are attached to disk images. Like when you mount a disk image, it can sometimes throw up a license agreement. Uh, does this happen to you? And those license agreement windows belong like to no app. Right, and you can't get back to them if you accidentally command tab away. They're just right. sort of there. And how do you find them? Well, you got to start minimizing other things to get them out of the way. Yeah, like they're not, you can't go to the finder and do hide others because it's not part of the finder. You can't go to any application and do hide others because it's not part of any application. It's part of like, you know, disk arbitration D or whatever the hell is popping up that that dialogue, right? One way you can find it, though, is using expose or mission control or whatever because mm. you can show all your windows and then you're looking at the little squinty thumbnails and finding them, right? So that's one case where I use expose. In other cases, it's like I have not done a good job arranging my windows and so I have no idea where this window went and even the window menu is not helping me because... This drives me nuts with the window menu where you're looking for like a tab or something uh, and th- you don't remember what the title of the tab was and you just need to see screen uh, thumbnails. Uh, so it's useful for that. Uh, but in which way was it? Let's see. They have the new, is it the new? Yeah, the new ungrouped option. They used to group all in Lion. They grouped all the windows by application. So there'd be like a little Safari icon and it would show all your Safari windows lumped together and then it would show all your, you know, uh, system preferences window lumped together and all your QuickTime re- player windows lumped together. But it, that would mean that a lot of your windows were covered up because the Safari windows would be overlapped and the one in the back maybe you couldn't see all of. Well, Expose used to just tile all your windows. You know, it would try to put, fit them all on the screen and doing whatever it took. And sometimes it would be hilarious on my screen. To, I would occasionally trigger all window Expose just to see the hilarious swarm of postage stamp size, completely blurry, unreadable images because I would have literally like hundreds of windows open and they would have to find some way to to show thumbnails for every single one of those images uh so that was mostly just an amusement for me and that's kind of probably why they said you know what 
even under regular usage, even under non-crazy programmer or text editor window usage, there may just be too many windows to show like that. And it would be better if we lumped them together because then we can make the individual windows bigger because they can overlap. And I think that was probably the right decision. But uh, this is a case where they decided that there were enough people, enough reasons to show the non-overlapping version. Because if you show the overlapping one and you only have two apps open, each has two windows, you've got four windows. You could make those four windows huge and put them, you know, see every single pixel of every single one. But Mission Control would lump them together. And so... Uh, two windows from one application. One would be totally visible, but the other one would be tucked behind it. And, and maybe the user can't find it anymore because the thing they're using to to look for, like, oh, where is that picture of Jimmy? Was that in a window? They can't see little Jimmy. He's behind the other window, you know. Uh, so they brought back the ungrouped option. Uh, there was another case from, you know, where Mountain Lion sort of repented for what they did in Lion and through a year of actual real usage, they decided, okay, okay, we can bring back the ungrouped, mo- ungrouped mode. That's important enough to have a checkbox. It's not like per invocation. It's a preference you have to set, but uh, I'm sure some people are happy about that. Why don't we do our last sponsor, give you a second to catch your breath. Sure. Source Bits, mobile app development house. Well, I shouldn't say mobile app development. They do more. They do web. They do design. They do all of this stuff. Anything that you want to do, and they know how to integrate everything. They've got more than 300 dedicated programmers and interface designers. So when you bring your idea to them and you say, well, I want an app that's like this on iOS. And you know what? I want an Android app to go along with it. And I need a website done and I need a back end. They can do all of this because they've got the resources and they've done it over and over and over again. And they've helped uh, companies develop apps, 20 of which, which is a lot, have hit top 10 in the app marketplaces. I mean, that's a big deal. And they know exactly how to do this. They know how to take brilliant design and turn your idea into a successful app in today's markets, the way that things work today. You can go there, you can go to sourcebits.com and you can see, you just click on their gallery of apps that they've done. I guarantee you, you probably used a handful of them before. And uh, they, they, they really know how to work with people who have ideas and don't understand how to take that idea and make it into something that'll be successful. They're, they're very good at that. And if you do, maybe maybe you're an iOS developer, right, John? You want to go in there and you say, well, I know I can build my iOS app, but I want an Android app that's on parity with this, and I have no interest in building an Android app, for example. Or maybe the reverse is true. Well, they'll build the parts that you need. They can integrate with the services you have. Anyway, they specialize in this stuff, and they're very, very good at it. Go check these guys out. Longtime 5x5 sponsor again. Uh, five, uh, really, really great guys. I met them. And they're super, super cool. Sourcebits.com. Go check them out. We're getting down to it here. I know. I can't believe it. It's going to happen. It will happen. Security and privacy. This is a, what was the big kerfuffle that made Apple change the policy on all apps having access to your address book data on OS X? Do you remember what that was? Remind me, I don't. There was some, there was some news story about how, you know, it, there were news stories going around like, do you realize that any Mac application can read all your address book data and upload it? Which has been true for years. Like address book is not just an application. There's a, fra- a public yep. framework right. that lets you, oh, people are saying path. I don't remember what path was. Do you want to, you remember what path was? It was it, some sort know, of- yeah, I remember what path was. It seems like a, a million years ago, but this was, uh, it's, I think it's still around. I mean, aren't people still using this thing? I don't know. I don't use those things. It was like was it like Instagram or like it's, Foursquare or like Foursquare mixed with Instagram mixed with Brightkite. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was it was kind of a combination where Instagram you're, it's mainly photos, 
uh, but path you could do like photos you could do places you could it was yeah, like four, yeah it was, it's like foursquare instagram and like something. someone would do do something and like upload a picture and then you would go there and, and inst- you could leave a comment you could leave a little heart because it you liked it you could do like a surprised smiley face if it shocked you or, yeah. Yeah. anyway yeah anyway path. they they made an application that uploaded all your contact data and people were all cranky about it them uploading the content they thought we're not going to use it okay we've deleted it anyway that was that was all a sideshow but the side effect was that of that was more people realizing that the address book framework could be used by any mac application so apple changed the policy to make it so that if any application wants to use your address book data the public api is still there but the first time you trigger it you get a little dialogue that says application blah 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 would like access to your contacts yes no uh, and i bet a lot of people who upgraded to mountain lion suddenly were surprised to see how many other applications want access to their contacts. I'm continually surprised. Sometimes I'm like, what is this thing? need access to them? Oh, what? I mean, I just always allow because I don't care. There's nothing secret in my contacts. Like, uh, you know, I, I, it, it all comes down to, as we all discussed with the path thing, whether you trust the company that these things are going up to and people didn't trust path that much, but like other applications, if you need, if you need my contacts to, to like the, the Apple's mail application, need access to the contacts so it can do autocomplete and stuff like, you know, fine. Uh, but this privacy control panel, the, the new privacy tab of the security and privacy uh, preference pane now has individual per app control of those things kind of like it did in iOS but there's many things in iOS where you control notifications and other things on a per app basis you you know uh, you can decide okay well this application can access to my contacts and can access uh, this application has access to my Twitter credentials uh, like this application can get my location that's another thing from iOS where like when you want when an application wants your location in iOS it says blah 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 app would like to use your location allow don't allow right so these are these categories of things that, like the, the preference pane shows them in, a, in a, a source list on the left side. And for each category, you can decide which applications allow access to that category. So no matter the, the great thing about this is no matter what you answer to that dialog box that pops up, you can always go back and change your mind. And you can also go back and say, what did I answer to that? So click on contacts and see how many apps have access to my contacts right now. Uh, and you can change your mind about any of them. Actually, let me look at my security and privacy pane and see it was my screenshot i just have one lonely application there because you're always using stuff and you know not a complete system contacts uh adium yojimbo quicksilver spam civ skype sparrow light and camino all have access to my contacts right now does that then that doesn't bother you yeah i mean like why does quicksilver need my contacts so probably some plugin Searching. that auto completes to yeah, yeah. that auto completes the contacts uh, uh there's also diagnostics and usage which is like that thing where lots of applications say uh, hey, can we send some di- anonymous diagnostic information back? And you can say yes, no to it. And that's always like how they can see how many people are running on iPads or how many people have how much RAM or stuff like that. And uh, this is the Apple thing. All right. So they've, they've put this into their own thing. Like oh, our crash reporter is going to send uh, diagnosis, uh, you know, usage information to Apple. Like, you know, what operating system version you're running? What hardware are you running on? How much RAM do you have? How full is your hard drive? What kernel extensions are loaded? All sorts of things like that. For any, like this is the Apple official crash reporter, uh, and you can decide whether they can have that information or not. Have. Now, you always had this choice, but the only time you got the choice is like when, when like the first crash dialogue came up and you could send diagnostic information, yes or no. Now you can revisit, what did I answer to that question? Am I allowing that diagnostic information to go back to Apple? And for the record, I would recommend you do let it go back because it helps them make their products better. If you're running kernel extenders that you don't want Apple to know about, maybe don't send it back. But I've never heard of an instance where Apple is like, I mean, first of all, it's anonymous. And second of all, uh, they just wanted to figure out what's wrong with their software. Don't you want them to figure out what's wrong with their software, too? 
Uh, that said, occasionally when an individual application asks me, I will say no to it just because I don't want it to like require a network connection when it doesn't have one or I don't want the crash reporter to get hung up trying to send diagnostic information if I don't trust the stability of the app or whatever. Uh, and Twitter is the other weird one that's in there in, in Mountain Lion because now Twitter is an OS level thing where like OS wide, just like it is in iOS 5, there's a concept of having OS wide access to Twitter credentials. So individual applications don't have to require you to sign into Twitter or do the whole OAuth dance or at, ever ask for your Twitter username or password, of course, because that's what OAuth eliminates. Uh, any application on the, on the system can send a tweet using the centrally stored authentication credentials for Twitter. And presumably Facebook will appear in this list too or any other kind of service. So they've made a, a flexible interface for their privacy information. Displays. Uh, we talked about the retina stuff in the last section, so I won't talk more about it here. But that is another simplification section. Instead of having a big list of resolutions, they've got a radio button. Resolution. Best for built-in display or scaled. And then when you hit scaled, then it expands out. Okay, okay, okay. Here's your list of resolutions. And then, you know... <laughs> Got brightness and color and all that stuff, but very simplified. Like so simplified that they, they had to find some way to fill the preference pane because they're always like the same width. They're always the same width as the preference. Right, it's got this huge empty space at the bottom at first. And, and on the left, it's got a huge picture of your computer. They're nice pictures of your computer. No, right? did, like, I was going to ask you this because I've only really seen this on the one. And, and of course, it shows the Retina MacBook Pro there. Does it does it change, of course, based on the oh, computer yeah, using? Yeah course like you dig out these resources well see what it does is it's not showing your computer it's showing your display and obviously if you have a laptop they're one and the same thing but right. in my case like when i'm looking at here i'm using a aluminum 23 inch apple cinema display like the model before they went to led backlit and that's what it shows it shows a you know a beautiful custom drawn image of this exact display not the 20 inch not the 24 inch not the you know it's the 23 inch aluminum display uh some person is just spending all day drawing beautifully detailed pictures of Apple hardware at huge resolutions <laughs> so a shrunken image of them can be shown appropriately. You know, And I, I'm assuming if you have some Dell thing put in, they'll just show some sort of generic picture of your display. Uh, but if you have Apple hardware, it shows up nicely. And, and that's, that's another nice touch of Apple's operating systems where when they can, if you're using their hardware, they'll show you like a little picture of your iMac that looks like your iMac, like in a sharing pane or something, or like my little, you know, Power Mac G5 or Mac Pro shows up as the little tower computer in the in the sharing pane. Tiny little icon all the way up to the big size. Uh, it always gives me warm fuzzies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now we know what does. Yeah, well, many things do. The ma the mouse preference pane. Yeah, so the, the whole, there was the whole thing. There was the whole thing in Lion about the scrolling direction reversal and everything. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, they've stuck with that in Mountain Lion and I'm sure it's not a big deal, but they used to have this weird wording trying to, to explain what, to turn it off. And so in Lion, it was like, move content in the direction of finger movement and scrolling or navigating. It's like, well, when I have that on, is that like the reversed one if I'm a long-time computer user or is that what I don't, you know? And, and in Lion, the trackpad pane said like, Scroll direction natural. Well, now the mouse pane says the thing, thing, same thing. Scroll direction natural. Do you want natural or do you want unnatural? So they're totally like, look, the way the way every the way scroll wheels worked for the first 10, 15 years of the scroll wheels existence is unnatural. The natural way is the way we want. Totally <laughs> unambiguous wording of the way they think things should operate. Uh, but at least the checkbox is still there. And uh, I still have it whichever mode puts it into the way it was for 15 years, I still have it that way because I like scroll wheels still. Uh, but but it's, this is the case of where a mountain lion has uh, not gone back at something the lion did. It has 
reinforced it and said, you know what, totally, we're, you know, maybe that checkbox goes away pretty soon, in fact, which will kind of make me sad and I'll be looking for the P-list hack to reverse it. But uh, Do you think that, I mean, obviously they take away these checkboxes all the time. Do you think that eventually they'll take away the P-list preferences too so that you won't even, even command line config won't change it? I, I hope not. Can you think of a P-list thing that they've taken away? Like they'll take it away if they take away the feature. Like if there was some P-list tweak to some feature and then that feature doesn't exist anymore obviously it's gone but i can't think of an instance where like i have this big long accumulated list of plus hacks and by the way this is another opportunity for me to advertise the free program which i should really charge money all for called secrets if you go to secrets.blacktree.com yeah this is a, a community contributed to repository of all these defaults plus hack commands uh incorporated into a system preference pane that lets you search for them and activate them without having to write anything at the terminal. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to get that if you ever want to hack with these things. And I don't think there's any that I have activated that have gone away and I've been up, you know, like, like oh, where'd that go? The ones that have gone away, they've gone away because the feature has gone away. So I'm, I think they're pretty good about keeping those things around. We'll, we'll see. Maybe Do we use the secrets prep pane. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I write, I have also have a text file with these defaults write commands, so I can just, you know, open a terminal and paste in a big wad of lines when I come onto a new system. But yeah, there's, there's some GitHub repositories that, that have that. I, I, exercise for the listener to Google, like GitHub, Mac OS X, Geek Default, Prelist yeah. or something, but there, there's a whole horde of them out there. And uh, some of them are pretty good. And, and I, I was reading through one the other day, and I was like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> they they yeah. hit all the, all the ones I do. Well, see, these things are, are, are potentially dangerous because just because there's a property list value that an application will honor does not mean, like, there's a reason there's no checkbox for these things. And the one that really bit me, I think I've discussed this before, was in Lion, the stupid window animation that I hated, uh, found the PLS hack for, someone found it and sent it to me very early on, like the day the thing was published, right? Uh, and, but that caused the dictionary definition popover to sometimes crash an application, but sometimes just get stuck on the screen and you couldn't get rid of it and you'd have to quit the application. And the first like two or three times that happened, I reported it as a bug to the application developers. And I was very embarrassed, especially the second and third times I did it. Like, oh, this is that same thing that I found before. Uh, if you disabled the new window animation, it triggered this bug. Now, who would have thought that like, if you disabled the, the zooming window animation for like dialogues and new windows, it would trigger a bug in the dictionary popover, but it did, and, uh, and maybe it still does. I, I still left that plist off because I could not stand the zooming window type stuff. Uh, but now I was then I could just no longer use the dictionary popovers, and I just that was a price I was willing to pay. But be aware that these property list hacks are undocumented and unsupported for a reason, and you never know when one of them is going to cause some cause some crazy bug somewhere way far away in your system that you would never connect the two together. Uh, so be careful, but. Uh, there are ones that are like time tested, like changing the doc to this alternate appearance or pinning it to one. And like, think of doc pinning. That's been around forever, right? And if they ever took that away, I think people would scream bloody murder, but it's never been exposed <laughs> as a GUI, right? Now, why do you think it hasn't been? I mean, for, are there people who don't know what doc pinning is? I'm sure there are. Most Mac users do not know what doc pinning is, I'm sure. What about uh, most, listeners of this show, though? I think most listeners of this show know what it is, okay. but, you know, I I don't... I don't think they're going to take that away. Like, there's a certain protection in if the people who are developers at Apple use this feature, they're not going to take it away from themselves unless some boss tells them to. And bosses don't care about this stuff, right? So this stuff will probably stay in because people love doc pinning. If anything, I would imagine someday maybe doc pinning will be exposed as a GUI feature because it's like, look, we've been 
We've all been pinning our docs for a decade now. Is it? Can we can we get a, an option for that? Can we get a pop up menu? Yeah. Who knows? Oh, let's see. Mail contacts and calendars. I like a little centralized place for all your email accounts. Uh, it's still a little bit weird for me sometimes when I'm setting up other people's systems to figure out what to name these things. Have you found that? Like when you set up when you set up your Google account, that that gives you Google Talk and Gmail. So you don't want to call it Gmail because then it'll be weird to, to show your Gmail account in like messages because what you really mean is your Google Talk account, but you don't want to call it Google Talk, so I just end up calling it Google. iCloud is a little bit easier. If you have an iCloud account, you just call it iCloud. And there's AIM and Twitter and all these other foreign services, which uh, may or may not appear depending on your geography. Uh, it's nice to see them all in one place. I just wish there was a little bit more guidance as to what to call these things because I can imagine someone who doesn't know what the implications of entering this information are they would call it something that's confusing. It's like, for example, if you call it Gmail and then you end up in your me- in the messages application and you see something called Gmail, you're like, how is Gmail related to my messages? Right? But it'll find it and connect it because it knows, it knows when you have a Google account that it can use it for Google Talk and Gmail at the same time. And I guess maybe sometimes they just call it the email address. Like, I don't even know what the default names are, but I found setting up on both my system and other people's systems, I'm unsure of what to call those things so it's most clear. Uh, to everyone involved what they are. But I do like them being a central place. Software update. That's another pref pane that's been gutted. Now it's all over to the Mac App Store. I've been okay with that. Like, Has that been experience been good for you? Like going through the App Store for Yeah, I, it actually has been. At first I was pretty hesitant about that. I had thought, you know, I don't, I don't like, I like, I like being able to get this here, but it does make sense. It does make sense. And the way that they notify you about the updates seems fine. And it makes more sense to have it be in the App Store. And I, I don't think anybody's worried about the App Store going the way of iTunes and just getting more and more and more. It seems like they're keeping it pretty focused. Well, we're, we're all asking for it to be more. Like, can we just get some tabs or a second window, please? <laughs> Say any, anything, yeah. Something. like throw Which would you prefer, though, the way it is now or in five years it's the way iTunes is today? Uh, the iTunes isn't... I don't think it'll ever, the problem with iTunes is it was given too many tasks, not that it, its interface to do those tasks became too complex. Imagine if iTunes was just the music player. There are very few features related to playing music that I would take away from iTunes. What I would take away is, and it's a syncing system for this, and it's the store for this, and it's, you know, that's, there was too much stuff in there, and you, you buy your books on it, and your TV, and your movie. Like, so if they just keep the App Store to, you know, the Mac App Store application just to selling me Mac applications or updating the ones that I have, including the OS then by all means, add features to enhance that. But don't add like, oh, and by the way, this is where you also control like your iCloud syncing from or something like that. Uh, so, and, and the other thing about it, the software update is that the software update preference pane was always crappy. Like, it didn't seem to get a lot of attention. It always had like that, that a tabbed interface where you could see pending updates that are available to you and also the installed updates. And you would always click on the installed tab and it would be full of lies. It was just reading a bunch of like .bomb files or whatever somewhere off on the, the side in your disk. And I don't know if because some of those receipts got deleted or like it, like the, the things it said that were installed were had no reflection on what was actually installed. It's like, why even show that to me? It's just confusing. I can't look at it to see whether something is installed or not. Uh, and sometimes after I install something, it still doesn't appear and some items are repeated. It was just always gross and it didn't really get updated. So now uh, software update hitching itself to the star of the Mac App Store app. Hopefully it will get, you know updated better and get nicer UI and benefit from all those things. So um, I endorse that and I've enjoyed doing my updates now, especially since uh, well, I guess this was true of software update too, but 
especially since the Mac App Store is no longer limited to doing full updates, at least when it comes to the OS. Like the 1081 update was like, you know, 20 megs or something like that. And that was glorious, right? Uh, instead of being like a, a Mac App Store app where, oh, you want to update a Mac App Store app? Well, here's the entire four gigabyte Mac OS 10 installer again. I think that's what it did when I updated my installer to 1081. I think it just downloaded the whole installer again. So I, I continue to wait for deltas there. I think Xcode does delta updates to the Mac App Store. I'm not sure. No. Why do anyway. you think? Why do you think that it's not there yet? Delta updates are really, really hard to do right. And if you screw up your updating mechanism, you're hosed because how would you fix the update? You know what I mean? Like that's the code. That's kind of like swapping out the virtual memory code in your kernel, right? If you screw up your software update code, how do you push the update to fix it for everybody? Like it's like a nightmare scenario where you're like, oh, do we have to mail people floppy disks? Oh, no. Right. So you have to be really cautious about that stuff. Uh, like if you want to see a story on this, go Google for the Google Chrome updating mechanism. Like one of the most complicated and uh, important parts of Google Chrome is not the web browser engine itself, but the updating mechanism. And the way Google Chrome can update itself in place and, you know, and say, oh, it will restart Google Chrome to get the new version where it sends just the deltas down between the binaries and everything is all signed and secure. And like I've never had Google Chrome uh, hose itself through an update and I update it all the time. So they built an impressive system there. But that takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. And they're slowly doing that. In the Mac App Store, and I assume in the iOS App Store too, but you got to really do it slowly, carefully. Uh, it's better to not have it and just do the whole file than to try to do deltas and do them wrong because that will make everybody sad. Uh, time Machine, Time Machine, you could back up to more than one disk now. I'm actually doing that on a couple of my machines. It doesn't like stripe them or raid them or mirror. It just basically says, I'm going to do an update. Now I'm going to use this disk. Next time I'm going to use the other disk. If only one disk is available. Well, obviously, only backup to that one. It's just a complete backup to a different place. But it makes sense. Like, who would, wouldn't want more redundancy? Uh, so that's a nice feature. And it, it's pretty clear in that it's not splitting your data across the two disks or anything like that. It's pretty clear. Like, we're going to make you a second complete total backup in just in a different place. Well, that, that works right? good for people who, you know, they want, they want to preserve a backup. They want to plug it in, unplug it, take it to their safety deposit box or send it to their friend in a different secure location makes it really easy to do yeah you could do that before but then every time you wanted to do it you'd have to like tell your system no 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 right. stop using that disk for time machine use this disk instead and then when that disk is gone okay now you're back like this you're gonna say look there are multiple disks that you can possibly back up to if they're all attached you just pick one of them and rotate but if only one of them attached yeah use that one so good job there on that but i think they did they do other time machine enhancements as well they're always doing efficiency improvements and stuff to Time Machine, but it's still hampered by HFS Plus and all the crazy hard links and the inability to do block-level diffs and have, you know, if I tweak, tweak one bit in my 2-gigabyte mail database file, the whole 2-gigabyte mail database file has to be backed up again and all that stuff. So that's a bummer, but it's not changed. Accessibility pane, they just rearranged it to make more sense. And it looks nicer, again, with a source list. If people don't know what source lists are, that was Apple's name for a left-hand sidebar that shows a bunch of icons and names, and you scroll through it to pick, and when you click something there, it shows like a detail pane on the right. Uh, like the, the finder sidebar is kind of a source list. And there are many source lists in the, in the preference pane, so they rearranged accessibility into be a source list. But I think they're just running out of room with using it as a tabbed interface. Like once, you, once your tabs span the full width of system preferences, you don't do a second row of tabs unless you're Microsoft, I guess. Uh, you go with the source list. So they did that. Launchpad has a search feature, which is kind of neat. It kind of makes Launchpad into a really, 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 really poor man's Quicksilver. Like, I mean, Spotlight is the 
really poor man's Quicksilver. But Launchpad is the really, really, really poor man's Quicksilver. And, and maybe it's better if you want to see like I type letters and as I type them, the world of icons in Launchpad slowly winnows down to just the ones that match the letters that I'm typing. So in that respect, it's more like Quicksilver where, at least with the, the default interface that I use, where you type letters and you just look at the icons and as soon as you see the icon you want, you just hit return. Uh, so that was a nice answer, especially since Launchpad... Like if you've seen a novice user launch, uh, trigger Launchpad, it's better than them digging through the finder to, the, to find the application, which is just painful to watch. Uh, but if they have more than one screen full of stuff, it's worth seeing like scan, 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 scan. Nope, swipe to the next screen. Scan, scan, scan. Like you know, give me a search box. Let me type a few letters. It's kind of like uh, the gateway drug. Spotlight and, and Launchpad with their search fields are the gateway drug to getting you to use Launchbar or Quicksilver or something like that which is much more efficient than all of these. Dashboard has a search thing as well, because like, and, and they took their, you know, that it was one of the worst user interface elements that Apple ever had. Dashboard used to slide up the rest of the screen and show this little horizontal, one-dimensional scrolling list of widget icons with little arrows on either side of it to scroll them. And like, where is that widget? And they were like in alphabetical order, and you'd go to the next one and the next one. And you had a whole screen to pick widgets from, but they would put them all in just one little narrow strip. So now finally when you pick widgets, it uses the whole screen. It lays them out. It looks kind of like a launchpad, actually. It lays them out in a big grid, or actually it looks more like springboard, and with a search field. So you don't have to like page through screens and screens of things. Finder, I think we talked about this before with the progress bars overlaid on uh, on folders. I saw that the Chrome guys reverse engineered the API for the overlaying the scroll bars so that the Chrome could put little progress bars on stuff in the Finder as well. Uh, I'm sure Apple loves that. <laughs> they, love, they love it when, uh, when third parties figure out private APIs. Uh, and then, of course, the share button in the Finder and ways to, you know, you can't figure out how to send something as an attachment if you could find it in the Finder. Even if it's an iCloud, you can do all my files, find the thing you want. Yeah, select the file, hit the share button, send an email message, all sorts of stuff like that. Share buttons on Quick Look, same type of thing. Because you're using Quick Look, you're like, you know, hitting the space bar, like, oh, that's the one that I want. Do something with it right from that window. Don't unquick look it and then drag it somewhere. Like, you see the thing that you want, use the share button, send it in, you know, an email message now, send it in an IM now, you know, tweet it right now. The chess application, boy, that thing has been around forever. I believe it has its origins way back in the next step days, or maybe it just came in with OpenStep. Uh, it actually was originally under the covers based on GNU chess. I'm assuming it still is, but I could be wrong. Uh, but they actually updated it because they added Game Center support. I don't think they enhanced the game much beyond that, but they added Game Center support to basically just show off like they're dogfooding their new API. Hey, you have a Mac uh, game application? Look how easy it is to add Game Center support. We took our chess game and then we, we add Game Center support and now you can play people online and get achievements and all sorts of other stuff like that. I still don't like Game Center. I still don't like the aesthetics. I'm no good at chess, but I've thrown a screenshot. <laughs> Got to put something in there, right? <laughs> and, and then, you know, I wasn't going to have any section at all about Game Center. When I originally wrote this, I just wrote about the chess application and said... Uh, oh, yeah, and it's got Game Center support, and I guess that means the OS has Game Center support, but I figured it was worth putting in a screenshot of Game Center. Uh, it looks kind of bare, which is part of the reason I was avoiding it, because I, at the time this was written, I didn't have any Mac games besides chess that supported Game Center, uh, because I didn't have, like, a beta of any game, and, of course, no existing game supported Game Center, because Game Center didn't exist on the Mac until Mountain Lion. So I see my little sad... Uh, game center thing just showing chess <laughs> and a bunch of other points uh, we, we all know that there is only one game for you one true game and it is chess I all know, of these other games are just warm-ups for your true game 
Of course, of course, it shows the it reveals my Game Center username, which you will never guess, of course, if I hadn't shown that screenshot. But that, that just putting that name in the screenshot resulted in many, many invites, most of which I rejected. But I like I don't I don't play on Game Center, so it's not. Don't feel bad if I rejected you. I don't do I don't do anything on Game Center at all anyway. Uh, File Vault Two, aka Hold Disk Encryption, they added a GUI for encrypting drives other than your boot drive. You could always do this before from the command line, but it was tricky. Now you can just right-click a drive and say encrypt, and that's nice. Kernel ASLR, I think Apple wished that I had written more about ASLR because it is important. Uh, I Maybe I would have gone into it more if I, if I felt like I had time to do another big in-depth technical section. Instead, I just linked, I just told you what it stands for, address-based layout randomization, explained it in about two sentences, which I think are pretty clear two sentences, and linked to the Wikipedia page if you want to know more. But basically, it's uh, not putting pieces of code in predictable memory locations makes it harder for malware to exploit because malware if you know say you're taking advantage of a buffer overflow or something like that we're like aha i am now going to be able to write arbitrary code into memory and then execute it or cause it to be executed uh, or overwrite some piece of memory that i know is going to be executed automatically uh, that's only useful if you know where the good bits are like you're like i, w- I want to jump into this routine because this routine elevates my privileges or this routine gets me out of the you know uh, writes, lets me write to this file on disk or something like or this. Uh, this routine bypasses a cert security check. Well, if you know where in memory those things appear, it's much easier to address them with your malware hack. But if every time that application runs, stuff is randomly arranged in memory, that makes it harder. And a kernel ASLR means it does that for the kernel itself. And the kernel is the sort of a high-value target because if there's going to be some important piece of code uh, that does something related to security or the overall system, uh, the, the kernel would be where it lives. And if the kernel itself is laid out in a static way where you always know in memory ad- address 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 is this one really important bit, and if you zero that out, it bypasses the security check, uh, that's bad. So uh, it's nice that that is randomized in Mountain Lion. That's kind of a catch-up. Like, this is not some advanced new technology. Most OSs already do this, and now Mac OS X does too, so that's good. I say Facebook, last section. Only a couple paragraphs here. I don't remember if I talked about this before, but the Facebook integration, which, by the way, I still haven't used because I don't use Facebook. I didn't install the beta. There was like a beta Facebook integration thing that you could download. Right. Uh, it's still not out yet officially. It will be out in the fall for everybody. Uh, I'm assuming it'll be like, you know, a 10, 8, 3, or 4, or like whatever. You, everyone will get it in that form in an OS update. And that integrates Facebook similarly to how Twitter is integrated. But it does a couple of interesting things. Uh, it's mostly... It's kind of the reverse of what we were talking about last show about Twitter, where Apple wants to get value out of Facebook, but it doesn't want Facebook really to get much value out of its Mac users, other than ensuring that more people use Facebook like on a daily basis. Uh, so, uh, for example, the, the Facebook contact information will be pulled into the contact interface, but the reverse is not true. All of your contacts aren't available to Facebook for them to see. And when the contacts pulls your information in, uh, from Facebook in, it like clearly labels it as Facebook information. And if you were to like sign out of Facebook or delete your Facebook account, it would ask you at that point, all right, so you want to delete your Facebook, you know, not your account like from Facebook.com, but like you want to delete your Facebook integration. You want to go to that accounts thing and hit the minus button on the Facebook account. Well, we've imported a whole bunch of stuff from Facebook into your contact database. So like if we found John Smith on Facebook and you have an entry for John Smith, we merge those two pieces of information. So we got like uh, their, their home address, or not, like their location, we got that from Facebook. We got their avatar picture. You know, we took that for their pay- Facebook profile picture. Like that's, that's that's one of the great things about Facebook integration, I imagine, because everybody on Facebook has some profile picture, right? 
But I bet you, if you your address book, if you were to look at it right now, you do not have little thumbnail pictures for everybody. So it's great if you can suddenly have thumbnail pictures for everybody in your address book, you just pull them from Facebook. But when you remove that Facebook account from your accounts in Mountain Lion, it will then ask you, do you want us to leave that stuff in there? Like, I know we're going to disconnect it from Facebook, so it's not going to be synchronized anymore. But we know which information in, in your contact database came from Facebook, like down to the granularity of this avatar, this email address, and, you know, this other piece, right? We can remove all that from your contacts database. We can leave it in there. Uh, you know, it's up to you. And so the, the fact that they are pulling information only from Facebook and integrating it and keeping it clearly labeled as Facebook data keeps it from a situation where Apple's like suddenly dependent on Facebook. Like imagine if they said, we don't do contacts anymore. Your contacts are your Facebook friends and they manage all of our contacts. Now Apple is like totally tied to Facebook. Instead, they're being very cautious and saying, we want what Facebook has, but we're never going to tie ourselves to it. Like our address book is our address book and we will enhance our address book data with Facebook data, and we'll keep that data in sync as it changes on Facebook. But at any time that user can bail and say, you know what, screw Facebook. I'm not doing Facebook anymore. Get that out of my operating system. And at that point, you can either keep or not keep the information that's there, and you're back to your independent uh, island. And of course, it's, you know, Facebook single sign-on, like Twitter single sign-on, where you enter your account information there, and then any application that wants to send a Facebook update doesn't have to ask you for your credentials and stuff like that. They just have to say, this application would like to access your Facebook, blah, blah, blah. And then you're off to the races. And then we're on to recommendations and summary. And I think I kind of summarized it in past, past reviews. The recommendations is like, should I upgrade, yes or no? This is another section which always looks the same because my advice is always the same. Maybe someday it won't be. Maybe someday it'll be like, like back in the day it wasn't. It's like 10.1. Like, look, if you're using Mac OS 10, everybody just upgrade. <laughs> Please 10. upgrade. It's 10, it was cheap. 10.0, it's no good. Yeah. You, everybody do it unconditional because 10.0 is so bad and 10.1 makes it so much better and it's like more usable, right? But most of the time these days, it's like, it's better than the previous one. Uh, it used to be they always got faster and faster. I, now it's kind of a wash. Some people feel like, oh, I upgraded and it feels so much faster. But that's part of that is the fresh install experience. Particular things can be faster. For example, gaming got a lot faster in, in Lion. That was a big jump from 10.6. So if you're a gamer, you're like, oh, totally upgrade for that. But if you're not a gamer, maybe you don't notice the speed increases. Like it's not an across the board thing like it used to be uh, when, when the OS was young. But in general, unless Apple totally screws something up, I recommend, yes, you should upgrade. Because if you don't, you will eventually be left behind. And Apple is very aggressive about Apple and its third-party developers are very aggressive about leaving behind old versions. Uh, I did talk about how bumpy 10.7 was, and we talked about this before, and maybe a, a viable strategy is to go every other release now and just do the evens uh, and skipping the odds because that's where the... Uh, the big radical changes are. We'll see if ten. We'll see if ten nine continues this pattern. If ten nine has more radical changes, then it may be at my advice. At the end of ten nine will be like, okay, we saw this with Lion. We saw ten seven was a big radical change, and then but at that time we didn't know that ten eight would be out a year later. So I said, yeah, you should upgrade to ten seven because yeah, it's radical, and there's some big changes there. But this is the way of the future. And what are you going to do? Stay with ten six forever? There are already apps that were only ten seven only, uh, but I didn't know that ten eight would be out a year later. So now when when ten nine is you know comes out, maybe I'll say, look. Uh, you can if you can hold out for a year, wait for ten ten or whatever the hell they end up calling it. Uh, this is all speculation, but in general, my advice is you should upgrade unless it's a catastrophe, which ten eight is not a catastrophe. But don't upgrade like the first day and be cranky because your stuff doesn't work. Like Google around, make sure your apps work, update all your apps, go to each individual app vendor's website. If you use you know Quicken or something, go to Quicken.com and look for a statement that says Quicken does or doesn't work in ten eight. Don't just blindly upgrade. Uh, but all that said, I, I found that I upgraded all my computers to Mountain Lion 
faster than I've done any upgrade except before since like 10.1 or maybe 10.2. Uh, all previous versions, in particular, both 10.6 and 10.7, I waited a really long time before all my Macs were upgraded to it, uh, especially my work Mac. In fact, my work Mac still is in mountain line, but it's not because I'm afraid to update it. It's mostly because I haven't gotten around to it. But all my home Macs are upgraded to 10.8 already. Are, are you 10.8 everywhere? Uh, no, I am 10.8 on the uh, Retina MacBook Pro and on the MacBook Air and uh, 10.7 or older everywhere else on all the production machines. But, you know, there are technical reasons for that. And yeah, well, very, very much if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Yeah, the pr- production machines, especially things that are running like headless in a closet or under a table, you don't mess with those unless they're not working. So, But I'm talking yeah. about machines that humans interact with on a daily basis if it's the OS you're using. Uh, I found most people I know have upgraded to 10.8 pretty darn quickly. And I've... With the exception of my crazy Skype problems and losing audio and all that crazy crap that was like the first day I upgraded to 10.8, I don't know what that was. I still have no explanation for it, but I do know it completely went away, and I'm happy about that. So that was the last machine I upgraded. I upgraded every machine, and I'm like, all right, finally I'm going to do mine because everyone else went totally smoothly. Like, I intentionally like didn't even change the dock on, on like my wife's computer so she wouldn't know that I upgraded her. Because if you don't notice the notification center in the upper right, and you, and you have the glass dock everywhere, not the glass dock. I keep doing that reverse. No one's called me on that, but I'm sorry. I keep saying glass dock when I mean the non-glass dock, right. which is the black one. You mean it's the black the, one with the little outline? Yeah. Yeah. The P-list hack thing has the word glass in it. And so every time I think about making the dock look that other way, I think about pasting the word, some word that has glass in it into a terminal command and watching that go through. So anyway, uh, they... The, the same upgrade is so seamless that some people won't even notice. Uh, and you can say that's, well, then why do I even have a reason to upgrade? Well, there are features of 10.8 that are useful, like the, you know, the integration of those services and the built-in applications are better and you want to you know, be up to date with a newer operating system and you got crazy stuff like Darkwake if you've got a modern Mac. You know? There are many reasons to upgrade, but it's not as a radical change as, as 10.7 was. So that's basically my recommendations. Everyone should upgrade. Wait a little bit if you have to. Uh, I mentioned the sticking to the uh, the even releases, but even if you were doing that, you'd still you'd still have a great mountain line. You'd just maybe skip ten nine. Uh, I got I related it back to the TikTok model from Intel, which I think I've done in previous reviews, and many other people have done as well. Was Intel was one of the first companies to have a PR campaign to endorse their development strategy, which was we do a new microarchitecture and then we do a process shrink, and then we just repeat that. And I can never remember which one of those is the tick and which one of those is the talk. Uh, I still can't remember at this point, but anyway, that's that's the reference. I referenced it in my Snow Leopard review, and then I referenced it again here. And then after the recommendation section, I have my actual conclusion, uh, which has two subheadings, two fathers and one son. A couple people got that reference. Most people did not, I believe. But I the, the reason I like that reference, and by the way, I came up with the two fathers, one th- son thing. That was like one of the first things I wrote in the outline. So like, oh, that's how I'm going to end this thing. Because I think it makes sense if you have no idea what it's a reference to. Uh, that's one of my criteria for references. This it has to be meaningful and interesting, even if you don't get the reference and the reference is just icing. Uh, I'm not going to not going to summarize my entire conclusion here because I feel like I have summarized the, the conclusion throughout the rest of my three episodes now on the topic of mountain lion. Uh, boy, I can't believe I thought I would get to another topic here. I spent all this yeah, time. Yeah, that's 121 minutes in. I have like... Three pages of notes on what was going to be my other topic. Uh, but anyway, I, I think this, this concludes our three-episode tour of my review of Mountain Lion. At this point, I believe it would have been quicker for you just to read it yourself and probably much more coherent and informative. Uh, and I hope at least as interesting, but no, not less entertaining. Less entertaining. 
I don't know. It depends. People, I've, I have, I have read it, and I have been here for three episodes worth, and I can say that this this way is better. Did you fall asleep when you were reading it though? I did use. I did read it in the <laughs> evening when I wanted to wind down. There you go. Yeah. I don't know. I, different people like different <laughs> things. But anyway, I hope everyone has enjoyed this tour of my review. Even though sometimes I feel like, look, why are you listening to me? Just read the review. But people want to hear different things. And and for for the curious, my topic that I was going to get to if I if we finish this up early was I wanted to talk a little bit more about Twitter. Uh, but specifically, I wanted to talk about this new Tent.io site, which is a uh, I want to talk about centralized versus decentralized and federated types of services uh, related back to App.net with the criticism that App.net. It's interesting, but it's really just another centralized thing that, you know, it's another overlord that we say we're all going to trust because they say all the right things, but really wouldn't it be better if it was decentralized? And I had a lot to say about that topic right before the show came on. Marco linked to something that I was, that was exactly related to what I was going to talk about. Uh, and I was angry at him for stealing one of my topics, but it turns out I didn't get to it at all. So it's going to be all his and hopefully these copious notes I just took on the topic of Twitter and decentralized services will not be completely irrelevant next week. Uh, we'll see. I would say that your perspective is never irrelevant. It's not irrelevant to me, but other people <laughs> may differ. But I think we're done for this week. Okay. Well, John Syracuse can be found in multiple places now. The first place to go would be twitter.com slash Syracusa. S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There is no Z. And you can also go to alpha.app.net slash Syracuse, same spelling, where you are maybe the second or third most followed person. Fourth, Marco has long since passed me by. Marco is number two or three? Yeah, three. So number one is Dalton. Nope, Gruber's number one. Gruber's now number one. Okay, so Gruber's number one. Dalton is number two. Marco is number three. You are? I'm number four. Four. And uh, I had a short stint up at number five. I think I'm probably down now. Nope, you're number five. Still number five. Holding hold strong. I'm yep. Dan. I'm just Dan on that. If you want to keep me at number <laughs> number five. And uh, Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And we want to say thanks very much to our sponsors who keep these shows going. Go visit them. The, the links and discount information, as always, is in the show notes for this episode, as well as all of the other links that John Syracuse has carefully cultivated and curated for your reading pleasure 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 82. And uh, just a little tidbit of information for the listeners. Um, at the beginning of this show, uh, I, uh, we, were started, we were talking about battery. Well, at, at the minute that this show started, that was 100, about 125 minutes ago, I unplugged my MacBook, uh, the Retina MacBook Pro. Unplugged it. It was at 100% charge. I have had it at about four down from full brightness. I have been, uh, you know, as we talk about topics, I've been adding them, bookmarking them, that type of thing. I've been watching the chat room, uh, maintaining, you know, watching the stream, that that type of thing. And uh, it's been on Wi-Fi and it is now at 66%. I have not been running TweetPod. (laughs) So... That's some real life. I just thought I'd share that with you, John. All right. Well, exercise to the reader to tell me how much time they think I have left. The computer says three hours, 46 minutes. 
That's how much I have on a full charge of my uh, MacBook Pro. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. Again, uh, 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 82 for all the notes and links. And uh, we will see you again next week. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you.